Yo, how are we doing, folks? Welcome to episode 102 of the Simple Life Podcast. Um, yeah, we're getting dark days, dingy. I don't know where you are in the world where you're viewing from. I hope you're getting more than five minutes of sunlight, which is what it feels like to me up in the north of England right now. But hey-ho, I'm not going to complain too much because we've got some beautiful guests lined up over the coming weeks to keep it bright and sunny. So uh, yeah, I think we'll we'll loosely segue into today's guest because it has been actually quite a quiet week in, in weed, really. A lot has gone on in, in the US, which we're going to discuss shortly with our guest. Um, but I suppose around the world, there's a really interesting story that I'm going to include in the link below just because of how hilarious it is. Um, police officers in India claim that for up to 500 kilograms of cannabis has been eaten by rats. Um, as a way to account for a disparaging in their numbers and accounting. So quite interesting, a story we want to keep an eye on, because if they get away with that, I'm quite uh, interested to see how many police for- other police forces around the world claim that uh, rodent infestations ate to their cannabis. But hey-ho. Segwaying on today to today's guest, uh, they are a New Jersey-born cannabis enthusiast and breeder who grew up in the 1980s in the New York cannabis scene uh, before starting to grow himself in the 1990s and then moving on to start experimenting, breeding and stabilizing his own genetics in the early 2000s, including Trey's dog, Star- the notorious as it is in the UK, Star Dog, I-95, the original New York City Diesel, which we will discuss the uh, O on that shortly as well, to name but a few. They're a member of the High Time Breeders Hall of Fame, a genetic consultant for Verde Natural and the founder of the multi-award winning and legendary Top Dog Seeds. They are JJ NYC. I'll introduce you. I don't know if I'm supposed to use your name. <laughs> Should have checked no, that with you. Fine. Fine. Uh, thanks for having me. No worries, brother. No worries. I've uh, been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. Um, I've been aware of your work as a breeder, as a, as a consumer, I suppose, on my side of it for quite a while. In recent years, become more aware of the diversity of the genetics that yourself has been involved with. And um, yeah, really quite interested to hear your story and, and find out how things like Stardog came to be, how um, your legendary um, Nigerian his, you know, there's, I think there's a lot here uh, to discuss. So I think if uh, if you don't mind, can we jump all the way back to how this started? And would you mind letting us know how and when you first got involved with cannabis? Well, I mean, if you want to start from the very beginning, you know, I first started, I first smoked when I was 13 years old. Um, and that was probably in the late 70s, probably in 79 that was. I was uh, in seventh grade at the time. Uh, I didn't really become a everyday a smoker till I was a freshman in high school a couple of years later. And that was probably uh, 1980. That's when I really started smoking. Um, I like to refer to that that time as the Cheech and Chong era, because back then, uh, most there was mostly import sativas from Mexico, from Colombia. You would see the occasional Thai, thai stick or Thai weed. Uh, you would see some Hawaiian occasionally, but... Uh, those things were, uh, you know, very high priced at the time. Uh, so as a, you know, as a young high schooler, it was very hard to be able to experience some of those things. But I usually hung around with the older crowd. So just in that, they would pass you a joint or whatever, and you would be able at least to smoke a little bit of it. You know, I might not have been able to afford to, at, to buy it at the time. But like I said, you know, when you were in these big groups of kids, you know, 10 or 20 kids and, you know, everyone's smoking weed and passing around joints and stuff. You get to, you get to try uh, a, a lot of different things. And uh, yeah, so uh, just moving fast forward, you know, I 
you know, uh, uh, in high school, I started, you know, uh, start selling cannabis a little bit and pretty much, uh, to the end of high school, uh, leading out of that is when I really got involved in the New York city scene. Uh, a friend of a friend of mine from town had gone into the Washington square park, bumped into some, um, some kids that brought him to a spot. Um, and we just started going to that spot, you know, ever since then. Um, and then just really networking, uh, the New York city scene, getting to know different people, um, eventually winding up in central park in, uh, 1992. And I guess that's really where my, um, that's really where my story really begins, I guess. Um, cause that's where I really met the, 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 the people that were involved in a chem dog. Um, I, you know, I had met the weasel up there. And I started uh, selling for him exclusively and, uh, you know, just ex expanding, expanding from there, uh, you know, getting into, in, into growing a little bit. Um, but just going back a little bit, you know, as, as a seller, you know, I would, you know, these guys were growing it and I was selling it, you know? So I had, uh, you know, a very, you know, close relationship with my customers, you know, they would, you know, I always, you know, um, use their feedback to tell the growers what to grow, what was working, what wasn't working. And, uh, so I, you know, you know, once the, the, the camp, the chem dog came out and I, I would say it was probably like 1992, 1993 is when the first time I saw chem dog. And, um, when people saw it, they were just, you know, they just went ballistic and, you know, and that was the original diesel, you know, uh, back then people just, uh, called good weed diesel. And so, you know, uh, you know, we used to have the, the chem dog and I remember showing someone and, and he's like, what is this? I called it. Yeah, it's a chem dog. He's like, Oh, it's grown with chemicals, something, you know, it's not organic, blah, blah, blah. You know, so we, we tried to, you know, get away from using the chem, the chem name and really called it, uh, we, we, we would call it the dog or uh, the original diesel. And that's kind of, you know, a lot of the, a lot of those names kind of stuck around um, and are used for different strain names now, because they were just kind of catch names. And, you know, back then names weren't as, relevant as they are today you know um so uh yeah so so my friend you know the weasel he you know he started uh he started giving me tips on how to grow and stuff and and it was right around this time when the, um, the you know the internet it was really just getting getting started and you know we had the uh the overgrowth site and, you know, I, ha I was at my spot and one of my customer comes in and he's like, oh, did you see the sour diesel online? And he was telling me about this form and all. And it was just like, you know, I never you know, I knew anything about it before. So, you know, I hop online and, uh, you know, get on overgrow and, and just starting, you know, just started to see, you know, what was going on there and, and the different, uh, people that were involved, the exchange of information was incredible because, 
you know, you could have a guy in the UK like yourself talking to someone like me in the States and you're showing me your grow. I'm showing you my grow and we're comparing notes and, 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 you know, trying to figure out problems and, uh, you know, just trying to move the whole movement forward, you know? And so we really started our own little community online community and that's where I really started to get the interest of doing some breeding. And when I first started doing the breeding, it really wasn't, you know, really intentional to be like, oh, I'm going to be a breeder or, you know, I just knew that we had these really good strains. And in the past, we had lost a lot of them, you know, and I was just the dealer and I would be like, well, well, what happened to that cush you guys had? Oh, we lost it. And I was like, man, people keep asking for that stuff. You know what I mean? And so... Now that had happened a few times and I was, uh, I was just like, listen, man, I'm just going to start making some seeds. You know, if I'm able to get these, these strains, these cuttings in my hand, I just want to make some type of uh, representation of them. And so that's really what, you know, you know got me interested in uh, breeding in the beginning was just a real preservation of the strains because I always felt like, you know, if you have a chem dog and, you know, whatever you cross into it, you know, if you can come out like 80 to 70% chem dog, you, that's a home run. You know, it doesn't have to be exactly chem dog, but if it has some type of chem dog in it or whatever, and all that comes down to genetics and, you know, it becomes quite, you know, complicated in trying to, you know, duplicate something to the exact, you know, an exact duplicate. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and um, I just started, you know, so I started making seeds and I moved over to uh, IC, IC Mag, because uh, that's when uh, Overgrow, that whole bus went down. I mean, when that happened, I actually got freaked out. I stayed offline for about a year and then found out that everyone was trickling over to IC Mag, which I did. Then eventually uh, getting on their, um, on their seed site and, um, you know, they were having running auctions and, and all this different stuff. And, you know, so I started making seeds and, and sending them in. And the only way that you were able to get paid back then was you could get seed credit, you know, in the seed bank, or they would, they wanted to send you an international bank transfer from the UK. And that just totally freaked me out. So I was just like, well, I can, I can go through all these, I can go through the list of seeds of what they have. And, you know, there's a lot of packs that I'd like to have or whatever. So I just started selling seeds and getting the seed credit and buying greenhouse and, you know, uh, Sensi and Soma and, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the Dutch guys, and that's really, you know, where, what was really offered at the time. That was what was most popular at the time. And so I just started, you know, getting some of those seeds and, um, you know, as my, you know, as people started growing out my seeds and really the very first release, I think was uh Trez dog and a star dog. And really, you know, the star dog is really kind of like what took off, got noticed at first. Um, I had a friend that was, um, he, he was in contact with the High Times magazine. And so I had given him a pack of star dog, which he had given to Kyle Cushman. And then Kyle Cushman moved out to California. And I think it was maybe in 
2010 that they had one of the first medical cups in San Francisco. And I believe Star Dog placed second. So that was really kind of the, you know, what really got the ball rolling on that. And, you know, needless to say, you know, I, it isn't really what I did did with the seeds and, and stuff. It's what other people did with it. I mean, I, I made them, I sold them, but other people grew them out. Other people uh, made the strain famous. Uh, you know, when something's that, that good, it kind of, you know, the cream rises to the top, people take notice and, you know, it wasn't anything, any kind of promotion or marketing or anything like that. It just, you know, good weed takes a life of its own. Any connoisseur can, can look at something and, you know, be able and be able to, uh, recognize that, you know, something is special. And I, I'm like that myself, you know, um, I'm a connoisseur first and foremost. I love to smoke good weed. I like different varieties of weed. Uh, but I like high quality, you know, in, in, in today's, in today's world, uh, it seems like marketing comes first because I feel like most of the customers out there are younger and haven't really experienced the full genetic pool like I have. I mean, I've been smoking, I'm 56 years old. I told you I started smoking when I was 13. That's uh, 43 years, you know, so I've seen everything that's, that's been around. I think I have a really good, um, you know, insight of what's out there you know and there's always something that could be out you know some old hippie up in the mountains might be holding on to something you know whatever but you know for the most part like you know the genetic pool what we have is what we have you know unless you're really going to start going backwards into getting into land races getting into you know older genetics building blocks and stuff like that and uh yeah so um I, you know i just have a real passion for for good weed and so um i just like to you know have the best of the best really and try to try to i want to also offer my experiences to other people experiences with the chem dog with the sour diesel with the hazes all of that you know um i've been lucky enough uh to have people share with me, give me these strains, uh, and uh, I've been able to work them. And, and I'm really trying to, you know, get those genetics out for everyone to experience. Yeah, man, it, that's beautiful. It is beautiful. I've had many guests on here. I've not had that many breeders so far, but it's, it's always wonderful to hear somebody doing something truly from passion do you know what I mean? Truly from love. And I think that that shows in the quality of, of the genetics of, of yours that I've seen. Obviously, I agree with what you're saying in that breeder does so much work in terms of producing the seed. Then the expression is down to, you know, the maximization of the environment by the uh, the cultivator and put their love that's put into it. So Stardog's obviously, as you say, taken on a life of its own. I think there's four or five recognized different cuts um, of the original sort of star dog. And then obviously people have bred like guava, Illuminati, uh, I think there's white dog, all sorts of different varieties. Um, 
how how do you feel as sort of the the progenitor of of Stardog? It's, I've always wondered how how breeders feel. I mean, you're, you're creating something obviously for the world, but then when others kind of come along and then add more to it. Um, yeah, I don't really, you know, I don't have a problem, you know, people using my genetics and doing any kind of work that they want to do with it. What I don't like is people just taking my genetics like a star dog and remaking star dog and just trying to make money off of my star dog or guava or whatever it may be. You know, I've used other people's genetics, but I've never copied them. You know, I've always used it as a building block into something else that, to further the genetics. Uh, that's one thing that I, you know, uh, with the feminizing thing, I think it's useful, but I think uh, over a long-term uh, generational perspective, it's not really th that beneficial, uh, you know, because you're kind of bottlenecking genetics together. And uh, what I find what makes uh, genetics blossom is uh, being able to bring two different things together and then making one thing that's better than both. Yeah, yeah, in, entirely. And you, you touch on a really interesting point there. I've been working with a couple of uh, uh, sort of genetic companies out in uh, working in mostly in Pakistan, but also in sort of the tribal regions around Afghanistan and was Kurdistan, even though it's not recognized, but sort of in those kind of regions. And um, they've discovered that the traditional growing techniques is they keep males around as they term it to motivate the females. And so there is this thing of almost, in the crudest of terms, you're sexually frustrating the, these crops when you're producing these, these female monocrops. And the uh, yeah, the, then with the cyclical cloning, obviously we have a genetic uh, drift or whatever they term it these days, but I think there is something there. It's quite pseudoscientific what I'm describing here, but conceptually I think there is an idea to it. And I've seen it when you know you have a random uh, hermaphroditization in a, in a grow tent and all of a sudden there's pollen. Ladies, they perk up around. They want to catch the pollen, obviously, so you end up with a denser trichome production um, and a, a, a better expression of the, of the plants. Um, I just thought it was something quite uh, interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, no, it's called hybrid vigor, really. And it's really trying to, you know, when the progeny is better than both parents. Yeah. And um, that was kind of the case with the star dog, actually, where, you know, the star dog actually became better than the chem four and, you know, the, the trade dog male that I used for it. Um, because that, you know, both of those, uh, well, the trade dog male was a uh, Afghani chem D uh, back cross. And, uh, really I made that male specifically to use for breeding. When I did start breeding, like I had explained earlier about losing these, uh, genetics and stuff. Um, you know, I was under the mindset that we have all of these clone only strains around us, chem dog, sour diesel, whatever, but we don't have no males. We have no comparable males you know, these were, you know, kind of like what you were saying, you know, these were bag seed. There was really, I don't know, you know, the real, no one really knows the real genetic, you know, makeup behind all of that stuff. Um, so, you know, I was always of the mindset that, you know, I wanted to create my own male. And, you know, at the time, the Chem D was the strongest strain that I had, not knowing that it'd have the prominence and statute that it, that it does today. You know, back then, you know, I didn't know the genetic pool as well. Um, you know, now, you know, 
20 something years later, you know, the, we're able to trace a lot of these things back to the original sources in some cases. And, you know, a lot of this is just possible through the internet and exchange of information and, and all of that stuff. So, uh, you know, just, just trying to, you know, um, use all that information and make a mail and then started to use that mail. And, and like I said, tried, tried to get some kind of original representation of the original clone. And so that was really what my mindset of that was going in is, you know, we don't have no males. I'm just going to create my own male with the top, you know, the best weed THC wise that I have. And, and, it, and it's just, you know, like I said, took a life of its own with the different, um, successful breedings that I've had with that male. Mm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So you start this around, um, sort of the early two thousands, obviously, Stardog by the time it sort of really took a uh, hold of the UK was more later on past 2012 sort of region. Um, yeah. So well, I mentioned the 2010 thing and that was really kind of what got that, got that noticed. And then yeah, two years later, you know, and, and that's kind of how it is, you know, things pop off here and then eventually kind of, you know, word makes its way around. And, you know, like I said, it just takes a life of its own. And before you know it, it's uh, across the pond. Yeah, it's it is an interesting analogy, I suppose, in the, in the release of films. When, when I was a kid, something would be released in the cinema in America and it'd be like, oh, great, six months, we'll have it in our cinema. And then it'd be released on video and you're like, oh, yeah, eight months, it will, we'll have it on video or whatever. And now it's it's seamless. And the same is is, is true, I suppose, thanks to uh, the multifaceted nature of social media and the internet. Is the, yeah, is I think the things move term. a lot faster now. Yeah, things move a lot faster now than they did back then. Yeah, for sure. So it's almost real time. Uh, we have a phenomenon here in the UK called UK Cali which is a marketing brand term by some vendors and dealers to describe American genetics grown in the UK, um, which is quite farcical, obviously, when you think about it, because we don't then say, oh, well, this is Afghan UK, or this is, you know, Lebanese UK, this is whatever. It's it's an odd an oddity that's kind of uh, arisen. Um, but I, have, I did discover when I was in America in 2018 that some of the UK genetics are actually quite well sought after in the States, is there anything that um, sort of yourself has ever ever been after? I mean, I know because of the same sort of problems, we lost some of the original sort of blue cheese, the original UK cheese. There are obviously, again, uh, representations that have been re reconstituted. Without getting too controversial, there's maybe a few breeders claiming they've, they've got originals of things that they maybe don't. Um, but yeah, I'm just, just curious, is, is there a market for sort of legacy old school UK in, in the States at the minute? Um, I know that the cheese is probably the most popular uh, UK strain in America. I've used it on a few different uh, breedings myself. Um, yeah, no, it, it definitely has something to it, you know. Um, uh, you know, but getting back to your your your, your Cali uh, remark, and because you know Cali here, kind you know when you say Cali weed in America. It's almost like you're saying commercial, you know, you're referring to commercialized weed. And I'm just wondering if that's the same, uh, you know, in the, in the UK or not. It is, but it's got such a markup on it. It's an oddity because I met farmers when I was in Mendocino that 
talked me through the process of wasting weed. So this this box fails a test because of lead or whatever else. It's then put in the the bin. They fill out a paper the paperwork. They get tax back on it, whatever, and then that then disappears. So we're flooded with imported weed as well. But it's stuff that then isn't legal to sell in the markets it's produced in. So Canada's another one that's starting to saturate the world because, as Steve D'Angelo said when we had him on the podcast the other month, about eighty percent of their market is going in the bin. They can't sell it because it doesn't meet standard. But they're still trying to recoup the uh, the losses, and obviously, illicit cannabis then becomes illicit. So it's 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 weird that loose Cali is sold yeah, for sometimes no, thirty five quid a gram, and then again, people are buying packs from China, like uh, Mylar bags. Getting that you get a big box full of Mylar bags, you buy your equals loose Cali that smells like whatever you, you don't know what it is. Sometimes you just then put it in a bag with whatever you label it, and it's exactly what you said before about that younger and younger market. They're being told that's what good cannabis looks like. It comes in a Mylar bag. A few years ago, they were told it came in tuna tins and everyone was buying cannabis in tuna tins. Well, you know, this is my theory on the Mylar bag. You know, when you're, when you're, just think about it. When you're on Instagram, what are you doing? You're doing this, right? You're scrolling, right? You're scrolling, scrolling until you see something that's like this, bing, right? All of a sudden you stop because something, jumps out at you and you may you might like the picture or you and then you might make a comment on it you know and it's the same thing when you're r- driving down the highway all of a sudden there's a billboard off to the right there's uh you know a woman scatheredly clothed you know that's going to catch your eye right away and so um cannabis has become visual now you know uh and 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 the marketing is 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 uh taking advantage of that so when you got a nice mylar bag and it's got this you know kim kardashian or whoever celebrity or you know and 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 and, and, and so it's really not about the substance it's more about the marketing and I'm all about substance, you know. I sell my weed in, in regular plastic bags and, you know, uh, well, I don't sell weed anymore, but, you know, that's the way we used to do things, you know. Uh, this whole, you know, Mylar marketing thing, I, I kind of get it, but on the other hand, it's about what's in the bag, not what's outside of the bag. Yeah, and it, to me it feels like... Um a form of placation and submission or kowtowing, I suppose, down to authorities that have made the system. They don't want you to look or smell your cannabis. They want you to go and buy it based on the brand in the same way that you do alcohol. Whereas most people from legacy that have an experience, you go to your dealer and he has jars and you get to put your face in it and you get to touch it and, oh, yeah, you can break it up or cheers. Yeah, I mean, really get to experience it. And then, and then because once you smell it, it's, the nose is a powerful thing in humans and you can sense the tones on, on the different layers of your nose. And I, I, once you've consumed enough cannabis, you can say to go, Oh, that's a bit of a, that's a wake and bake for me. That's something that will really wake me up. Or you go, Oh, that'll put me down. And you start to have that intimate relationship with cannabis, but you denied it in the commercial market because they don't want you to touch it. Well, a lot of that comes with experience, you know, and, mm. you know, if you don't have the experience, then you're not going to know. And then that's how you get taken advantage of. Very true. Very true. This is something I worry about with the edibles and vape markets and things like that is 
if the companies are not confident enough to to sell the flower where people can know what a good quality flower looks like whereas we have vape carts for convenience etc i understand it but i just worry that capitalists that have ran the world forever that have you know taken over the emerging cannabis industry their business practices typically right but not right, exclusively right. unscrupulous you know right and and that's the difference between legacy and commercial mm. you know uh commercial is just price point fixated it's a business and uh you know when you scale up and you know when you work and you see in some of these warehouse what goes on you know, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff, you, you know, you can't do the, you know, you can't do the same thing in a huge room that you can in a small craft room, you know, the amount of work, uh, you know, it, I mean, and it's impressive, you know, you, you look on IG and you see some of these big greenhouse grows or acres and acres and they're huge, but you know, what else is huge is their problems because once they have a bug infestation or, or you know powdery mildew or whatever the problem may be all of that is just going to be so hard to contain and just going to contaminate the whole place where where you have a small craft room where you know with a couple lights and you know it's going to be you'll be it's easier to contain and to uh, to treat those problems in in a smaller environment and you know, you're, and, and so really, you know, uh, and you know, moving forward, you know, it's it's going to be a really fine line, you know, because you you know, you got these commercial uh, facilities, and you know, they're you know, they're into making money, you know, that that's really what the bottom line about those men, and most of those people aren't cannabis people, you know, these are people, these are money people, and so they. They only know uh, investment and returns. Uh, you know, to me, cannabis is more of a uh, uh, of a market, kind of like fruits and vegetables. You know, it's a commodity market where you know today it might be worth and, and supply and demand. Today it might be worth this much, and tomorrow it might be worth half that much. And so. Um, you know, a lot of that changes, you know, uh, you know, I, I look at as cannabis as, as a fruit or vegetable because it has a certain shelf life. You know, when you, when you pick it, you know, there's a certain ripening to it. And, um, you know, once you, you know, have something sitting on a shelf for six months, you know, by that time, you know, it's pretty much dried out and, you know, the turps are gone and, it's going to taste like hay and it's not going to be a good experience for the consumer. Yeah, exactly that. And when that's not the focus, it's the mass, how much biomass times that by X equals dirt. And it's, it is, it's, it's formulaic. They've not got the passion or the love for it. Uh, it's obviously recently it was MJ BizCon in uh, Las Vegas. I think last week. I don't know what week this is going out within the past couple of weeks. Right, yeah. um, so it, I think that is quite described by a lot of the legacy as the mecca of of let's call them the chads, which just seems to be the the colloquial term used to describe yeah. non non legacy kind of rich kids getting into cannabis for the financial return in the short term gains. Um, and yeah, I think that there seems to be this war for the soul of cannabis. 
And as you said before, I, I agree entirely. It should be regulated as a commodity, so allowed to fluctuate based on supply, demand, and further other socioeconomic factors like many other things. Um, whereas the investors that have made their money from the first few states that went legal, the big boys, then seem to move into the next few states and regulate, uh, sorry, and uh, rally and get people together to then put in place regulation and legislation that benefited their model, their bottom line, until these little fish became big fish from eating all the fish until there's just a couple of giant fish left in this pond. And the little guy's obviously just trying to to get around, but the, they're going to starve. There's not enough client base for them. People that become more experienced. So obviously every year there's more novice consumers for them to exploit through marketing gimmicks and sexualization of women and uh, cartoon images and all the rest of it. But the people that understand will grow the longer they have a relationship with cannabis, once they've got an opportunity to grow it, to go on these forums, to look on social media, to connect with these online communities, we just, I think we'll just continue to grow. And because we offer so much more in freedom and knowledge, and as you said, the, the desire, the want to share that knowledge with the next generation, not hoard it for our own potential financial uh, future. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's nothing worse than, you know, buying a, a bag of, a bag of weed and then it doesn't work for you. You know, uh, it, it, for me personally, it becomes quite frustrating um, you know, you can give me an ounce, you can give me a ton of this shit. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work for me. Uh, you can give me an eighth ounce of chem dog and I'll be happier than a pig and shit. You know, so, uh, you know, I don't think that they really, you know, recognize, you know, uh, the craft part of it and kind of like what you said, you know, and the thing is, it's like the people, to have the knowledge don't have the money, but the people that have the money don't have the knowledge. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a big disconnect between that. Um, it's really, you know, with, with Verde, who I, who I'm working with, um, we're, we're, you know, they, they're on a, uh, you know, they're into craft, you know, they are uh, growing for rosin production. So, you know, they, they have a whole nother mission and you know which is very hard to find on the commercial end you know and i've talked to a lot of different people and you know you go and you, you go in uh tour their facilities or whatever and you know and then you try to you know visualize where you fit into the picture and, and, and all of that because a lot of these people just want to rape you for your genetics you know, they want you to come in, they want you to bring in all of this stuff. And then, you know, a year later down the road, see you later. And, you know, and even with that, you know, they could still have that and, and still not be able to uh, reproduce what craft does. You know, um, a lot of it has to do with, you know, the way they run the environments, the rooms. And, and that's like another thing, you know, um, you know, just to build out certain facilities I go into. And it's just like, you know, you, you know, you just shake your head. And a lot of these guys are under the mindset. They already have invested X amount of million dollars into their thing, into their facility, but it's not right, you know? And now they have to invest even more money to make it right. And now they're juggling money 
And, you know, it just becomes a, a really big shit show at the end, you know, people not getting paid and so on and so forth. And uh, so, it's yeah, it, it, it's a jungle out there. Yeah. And I think it's just going to keep getting worse, in my opinion, too. And left unfettered and unchecked under neoliberalistic capitalism, it will cannibalize itself. I think that is inevitable. We are seeing that since Reaganomics and Thatcherism in the sort of mid to late 80s, um, all industry is now devouring itself until there's a few giants left at the top. And I think the cannabis is unfortunately following the same. If we look at the first wave of major investors was pharmaceuticals, uh, tobacco and alcohol moved in pretty quick and got pretty comfortable with with the industry. And so this is what I was sort of alluding to before with different states sort of coming on board. Um, One thing I did want to ask you, actually, it's quite interesting in the midterm elections uh, in the US recently, there's five US states uh, were set to vote on the potential of uh, legalizing adult use, but only two of them passed. I've obviously looked at them and the others I think that didn't pass are more Republican. So in the UK, they're a bit more uh, sort of conservative leaning. Right. Um, um, but so w- what are your thoughts? What do you, do you know of anything as to why some states went somewhere? I saw also that um, the legislation was quite restrictive actually in the other three, they didn't include expungement. Was, was that a, a... Yeah. I mean, really in the U S there's really a real culture war going on where where states in the South are more Republican and more conservative, as you say, you know, a lot of them are uh, very religious and um, those people, they don't want anything to change. You know, um, they just want everything to stay, stay the same. Uh, Most, and you talk Republican, in my mind, you're talking old money, generational, especially down south, you know, where they've had plantations and just generational wealth through tobacco and different industries. And, uh, yeah, they just, you know, it it, kind of just blows my mind because, Mm. you know, um, when you go down there, it's just, you know, the people, some of the people are great. Don't get me wrong. You know, there, there are, there are some of us, people that live down there, but they're in the minority, unfortunately. And, you know, everything uh, down there is, you know, kind of run by the the good old boys. And so, um, yeah, you know, when they see, you know, people like me that come up from North, my Yankee ass, you know, they don't, they don't like people like us because we, we, you know, we think outside, outside the box, uh, we, we will challenge your positions, you know, and, and really, really a lot of it comes down to what's right and what's wrong. You know what I mean? And it's like, you can, you can, you know, make the biggest smoke screen and that's kind of been, you know, the, um, you know, the legacy of cannabis to begin with, you know, there's still, you know, certain stereotypes and auras that are, uh, put on cannabis and, you know, those more conservative types kind of stick, stick to those points where in reality, you know, uh, when you see, you know, uh, someone in a seizure and they take cannabis, have, you know, they get some, you know, the, you know, the, you know, those kids that are in 
and, and they get the, the shot in the mouth, the, the liquid, and then, you know, 10 seconds later, they're, they're, they're not, they're, they're, they're like normal, you know? So, you know, to you know, the proof is in the pudding and you, and you can't deny certain things and facts. Um, but you know, those type of people, you know, and, you know, I don't like to get political or anything like that, but you know, a lot of the election deniers and, and, and people like that, you know, uh, you know, that's what their mindset is. And, you know, I, you know, I'm a person that goes on facts. If you, you know, if, and if, listen, if they, sh if they showed the facts of what they were fighting for, then, you know, then you have, you have no other, you know, other way to, but to agree with them. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding. You know, if you can't, you know, if you can't put up, then you just shut up because, and, and that's what people do. They, they have the largest microphones and they just try to drown out everyone else. And it's kind of like the same thing that's going on with the marketing of cannabis today. Yeah, it's, it's, it is those that profit from the ignorance of a certain population are intent and hell bent on keeping them ignorant. Because it's interesting that if you then actually look at the foundations of the the southern what was back then the southern colonies of uh, prior to the U.S., um, they were growing cannabis. It was under mandate from the British uh, king at the time, I believe it would have been, um, in Jamestown. The cannabis had to be grown. It was a, an offence to not grow cannabis once you had a certain size uh, colony and a certain percentage of it had to be brought back in taxation. We often talk about like the Boston Tea Party and tea and other taxable goods, but cannabis has been written out of the history of the South, but it is equally as as prominent and as, as, as connected to it, as you say, as, as tobacco, as uh, slave trade, and as some, many other sort of uh, mass industry, cotton, et cetera. Um, so it is quite peculiar that they are sort of refusing to have that conversation. But I think what you say is, is true. Facts are facts, but we live in a world with manipulative algorithms, uh, you know, biased news sources, and people people are people at the end of the day, and we can only take in so much information. And I don't necessarily blame them for their ignorance or their stance on this, um, but I do wish that more could be done. And I think more should be done by those commercial interests, as you were saying. But to go back to this whole thing of the, the craft versus commercial, the difference is the commercial industry are just trying to get the pinnacle of the highest THC number, highest number I win. They've just completely missed the point of this, that the best weed I've ever smoked is low teens. And the Terps are three, four percent, and you are on your ass for about a day. It's the combination, the synergy, the entourage effect, as we're learning to describe, of all of the micro, uh, I say micro, smaller amounted cannabinoids, uh, the synergy of the terpenes, of flavonoids to a certain lesser extent, and they're not interested in the science of that for the consumer. They're all doing it in their laboratories, obviously, and wanting to to use that information and sell it to the pharmaceutical companies. But it feels like they're just trying to dumb down the cannabis that we can have. So that obviously, yeah, those that know can grow it at home, but the commercially available, it's like McDonald's. It looks like food, tastes like food, but is it really food? <laughs> no, I, I agree. You know, most, most uh, cannabis that I like probably test anywhere from 18 to 25%, you know, um, you know, and, there's a lot to be said in the cannabinoids and the the burning of cannabinoids in uh, vegetative matter. You know, there are certain things that once that's combusted, 
that that you know we don't even know about today you know there's certain chemicals makeups and effects you know um you know we can you know we've done some testing you know before you know pre-testing but you know the actual burning of the cannabis i you know in a vegetative matter um there, there's something about that because when you smoke hash i don't get the same euphoric feeling any kind of concentrates or anything like that. And don't get me wrong. I'm, I, you know, I like my hash and concentrates, but first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a, you know, uh, a flower consumer. And for the reasons why I just explained it, I can't really, really, um, you know, pinpoint it myself, but there's something about when I just smoke, you know, it just gives me, uh, like that warm, fuzzy blanket feeling, uh, more euphoric. Um, it's more body, you know, where you smoking concentrates or hash, it's more head, head, you know, and so, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot more, uh, research, I believe that has to be, has to be done, you know, and, 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 you know, and on the research point, like, you know, there, you know, the, here in America, there hasn't really been any real, you know, scientific medical research. I mean, it, it's starting to happen now, but, you know, and I know the government has been doing it for, for quite a while. And, you know, and most of the things that we've learned, we've had, we've had to learn on our own. And that's really the, 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 the one thing about cannabis is like, you, you know, you, you really can't, if you're not involved in it and you're not actually doing it, then you're not, you, you really don't know anything about it. Like you can be book smart and read all of the information that's out there on it. But when it really comes down to it, you know, um, you know, personal experience um, works best. And, uh, you know, and that really brings you back to craft. You know what I mean? Where, you know, the craft people, that have the experience and have the knowledge and have the passion. Those are the ones that are really making it happen. And, you know, and where the guys on the bigger end, they're just kind of sucking up all that gravy, you know, uh, cause they can afford to do that. Exactly that they can, can run at a loss. And it's, it's odd that well, it's, it's not, I suppose it's kind of, it's classism in a lot of ways. The, the people that have the kind of money that is necessary to require licenses and set up infrastructure within the legal uh, states and places around the world, they are pals with the friends that then go and go, oh, well, I've, I've got botanical degree or I've read about cannabis or I've heard and we can go and I've got this mate at the home office and we'll set up this thing versus if they just talk to the criminal class or the criminalized class, the clandestine growers that have grown during prohibition, that have managed to pull down 10,000 plants in an abandoned church and no one ever noticed and the product was brilliant. I want the, the person that has honed their skills uh, on the, the climb of the hero's journey that has really accrued their, their, their skill set versus the the guy that has been plumped plumped into the perfect environment and read some books and, and managed to get it right like that's not it's it's not the same it's not even it's the rewarding of it as well you, you want to reward the investment the hard work of that clandestine grower over the the college kid that's just saying i can i can do this i can do whatever 
But well, really, I think the whole the whole system is kind of set up for corporate. They don't want craft. They don't want small mom and pop. You know, um, I don't know what their fear is. They th- I don't know if the fear is that we're going to be able to outperform them or we're going to be backdooring stuff out the back door illegally. You know, I, I re- you know, or they're going to oversaturate the market. Like, you know, I don't really see, you know, because, you know, even someone like me, I can't get a license, you know, because I can't afford it. I don't have millions of dollars to invest in that. I might have a, a small little, uh, little nest egg to start a small mom and pop business. But, you know, even with that, you're still, still talking probably like a million dollars and, uh, you know, and, and they won't even let us, they won't even let us get to that to compete, you know, and, and really one of the biggest disconnects here in the States is, is, is all right. All right. New York is legal. All right. New York legal weed, but all right. I want to get a license. All right. Well, only X, only X amount of cities or towns are going to allow it. All right. That's just taking a, an example. All right. You know, you can pick any town, you know, and what happens to get, so the state says, all right, it's up to the town. If they want to opt in the town opts in, all right, we're going to allow four facilities in our town. Now that gets kicked down to, now, how do you make application to that? What's the process of them awarding those applications? Is it going to, on points? Is it on favoritism? Is it the mayor's brother's son? Like, you know, how, how does that all kick down? You're only allowing, it's legal, but we're only allowing four facilities. You know, and how are you supposed to compete, you know, to, to get into that? Now, you got to go down and lobby uh, the, 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 the town council, the mayor, you got to um, uh, make all kinds of contributions to the town and, 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 and the whole thing becomes a whole political mess. You know, instead of simply just allowing, you know, uh, the market to correct itself, you know, let, let, let the floodgates open and, and, and the people that make it, make it. And the ones that don't, don't, but the way that they have it is they have it set up. So, craft and small small growers can't get in they you know that's how they're acing us out is by regulations and and so you know instead of you know know, all right we're going to make it legal but it's not going to be easy for you to get a license so you know what what, i'm going to stay black market and, and 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 undercut the legal market and that's what what they're setting themselves up to happen because legacy is not going to go away. You know, people started legacy black market when they were getting jailed. And now actually, you know what, if you come and what, if I have too many plants, what are you going to give me a fine? Like, what are you going to do to me? You're not going to put me in jail. So I'll pay a a thousand or 5,000, whatever. It's just part of doing business in my eyes. It ain't going to stop me. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and then keep undercutting. You're not going to get your tax money. And so they, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. It's going to be, it's going to be a war, I think. Well, it is already. Entirely that. 
because these corporations, once they conglomerate to a certain size, they'll do what capitalist corporations do. They'll find a way to produce tax havens to avoid paying tax, to make sure that there isn't any money going out. So for the minute, they're all happy to pay that to play to establish themselves. And they're waiting to buy up all of the mom and pops who manage to scrape and save and get all that full town together to open up a little, it's by us for us. They're just trying to wait us out. Exactly that. They're trying yeah, to also starve the legacy. What they're trying to do is they're trying to eliminate home grows. They lobby yes. against home grows. So those people cannot produce their own medicine. So they got to go to their dispensary to buy their mm-hmm. and buy their product, product that is like, you know, probably way less than what the, you know, the person that's, you know, doing the home grow doing. Exactly that. The, the, when we look look at FECO, full extract cannabis oil, the, the idea of people producing it at home for a variety of availments and and prophylactic use, the, that is just completely not accessible on the current system, really. And it, yeah, it's the New York situation is an interesting one because I, d- I decided to, to look into this a bit more. I've been keeping an eye on it for a while, but obviously there's been an acceleration of news actually the past couple of days. Um, so you're right. It's it's New York's kind of crap given the size of it. They're limiting it, limiting it to 175 licenses. They've so far had 900 applications, um, which is still open to the end of the year. Um, they've issued the first 36 on Monday, which will be for continuity, folks. Monday. I just want to add 21st. in something real quick about the application. Just to let you know, 900 applications are all non-refundable. <laughs> of course they are. Of course, Everything has to be a money-making exercise. Again, it's just, so as you said before, lobbying, of even just the speculation to think about getting a license costs you money. Then the application process, and again, even funding, getting everything together, because the expectation is that you are supposed to be a fully fledged business person. You are supposed to have had all of the experience in a legal market and but somehow how you, all of the experience you've had in an illegal market. Exactly. That's that, what that, I was just going to say. It's a catch-22. Yep, uh, yep. So it's interesting. So New York have obviously... I've, I've really appreciated the language that was in New York's bill versus um, quite a lot of other legislation that's being proposed and passed in America as uh, as you guys call it, a so-called recreational or adult use. But they really tried to lean heavy on this social equity. So they've said that they've planned to stick 200 million pounds, a million euro, uh, what's your currency? Dollars, damn it. 200 million dollars um, into a, a private fund to help social equity. They were saying can, that I, it, can I just add, can I just make a point on social equity? Please to, do. to qualify for social equity, you had to have been arrested for cannabis. And then you've had to have, then you've had to have run a successful business for two years, employing six people. Now, how many people get out of jail and open a business and employ six people? So, so, so like that social equity program is a bunch of bullshit. Do you know what it is? It's genius. I am very fastidious about language, as many of my previous guests and anyone that reads any of my writings will tell you. Um, but that's really fucking manipulative and smart of them, to be fair, because actually what they're doing is, yeah, creating social equity, a term we're using, so they're stealing, co-opting that term, 
And if you look at now, these raids that are happening in Brooklyn and various regions of these big companies that have opened up as dispensaries, I guarantee you they'll have been operating, uh, trying, to, trying to get into that window of operation. So they'll have employed a certain amount and qualify under certain uh, categories of that social equity. They just won't hit the two-year mark, but I reckon that will then give them extra points when it comes to application of licensing. So I think actually, yeah, Whereas then the guys that are opening like the food trucks or the bodegas that are then converting and they're going to get destroyed because it's not where the system wants them. Do you know what I mean? It's not, right. it's not the legal air quotes legalization they want, which to me is very painful because legalization is corporate restriction. Whereas if we got true, like you guys are using the term deschedule in America to deschedule cannabis. And that's where I want to see it in that no matter what we do with the plant, we're cool. As long right. as it isn't isn't a weapon, you don't use it to commit a crime, then it's it's cool. And there's the corporate side of it. But until we're unshackled at the bottom, as you say, and allowed to just grow our own and perfect our own genetics, explore what is out there and develop and cultivate these relationships with cannabis, they're, they're going to continue to build and get a power and influence. But as we say, each generation are just going to move more towards that legacy and we'll just get stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah, I think in the New York case, though, like if you're operating an illegal uh, dispensary, um, I think from what the city was saying that you were not going to be able to qualify for a license. You know, so, uh, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. I know they're going around threatening people. Uh, if, if you're operating, you're not going to get a license. I don't know if, you know, I would have to assume that most of those people did make application. Hmm. Um, and the one thing about uh, making an application, like you have to secure uh, a location. So um, that, that means paying rent possibly for a year and just letting this and waiting for your regulations to, to kick in. And, uh, and then you can open up. So, you know, you know, uh, the, the pre-cost, you know, to, to secure a building, and if you're paying five thousand a month or whatever it is, you're you're you know you once you sign that lease, you're on you're on the hook for that year. You know mm-hmm. you you're gonna be paying fifty sixty thousand dollars for something that's closed. You know, and so really it really gets back to the big money issue mm-hmm. where you know you gotta invest in a location, you gotta make application, you gotta. You know, by the time it's all said and done, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars and to get a chance to get a chance to get a, you know, so, you know, uh, I'm not going to gamble my life savings away to, to get a chance, you know, so, I mean, and, 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 uh, and a lot of people are in the same situation. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, in- interesting. So they're going to f- follow the Canadian sort of model uh, of going, if you if you did what we're now going to legalize tomorrow or today, you're not going to be in business tomorrow. So obviously there was that whole uh, period of time where the Toronto government was putting giant concrete blocks outside the front of shops and was doing everything it could to obstruct the sale of cannabis without arresting the people because it knew its courts wouldn't prosecute them. Ultimately, then the decision was made against Mark and Jody Emery uh, and others to you know, ban them, despite the fact that it was their actions and their work that built that industry in in, in many ways, along with obviously many others. Um, so again, it's, it's frustrating. It's that paradox of how can you develop experience in this industry if you don't have the experience in the industry until there's an industry and then 
in order to participate <laughs> in the industry, you need the experience. It's like we have this paradox in in the UK of, of young people leaving school with their CV, and the joke is kind of the one you would at eighteen to have two years experience, but also have a degree. And it's like, well, how could I have gone to higher education if I don't? Then how could I have done both? You know what I mean? It's yeah, yeah. paradoxes that are set to handicap us, and I think exactly that when you look at it. But I imagine there'll be some of those big boys that have, will have done that. I mean, it actually makes Cookie's marketing strategy, I suppose, quite smart in opening souvenir shops and being able to reaccrue the uh, the expenditure that is spent, hoping that that will eventually become a dispensary under, um, yeah, the the regulated system. Hmm. Again, it's it's advancing advantage. Uh, God giving an advantage to one group over another and intrinsically that to me is is against the nature of cannabis and the cannabis culture we are everyone everyone consumes weed anyone that's been part of the legacy community understand this diversity and to now be handing it over to a small subset of a, of a culture and it's it's classist it's do you have money and, and pre-existing connections and influence and a network of politicians and investors and bankers and bureaucrats. No, then get the fuck out of our industry. That's how they're, they're, they're setting it. They're, they're building something that isn't for us, but is built on our hard work, the foundations of the legacy industry. No, you're, you're totally right. I see it just going in two different directions. You know, you still, you know, you got the, the you're going to have the commercial, the way that it's going, and then you're going to have the, you know, you got the legacy. So you got yourself a big split going, going forward. And, it, and that gap is just going to continue to widen and, and widen as time goes by. And as we get shut out more and more at, at opportunities, because like I said, legacy isn't going anywhere. You know, I, I can survive doing what I'm doing for the rest of my life, you know, to be honest with you, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, living a high lifestyle, but I'm doing good. I can't complain, you know, but would I like to take it to the next level? Would I like to take it to, you know, trying to commercialize and, you know, and, and, and do craft together, you know, and, you know, it's, you know, of course I would like to try to do that, you know, but if I don't get the chance to do it, you know, I could just stay doing what I'm doing. I'll be fine. Exactly that. Exactly that. I can't wait till th this underground movement starts to, I don't know whatever language we use because we started obviously the movement to legalize cannabis based on our interpretation that legalization meant ending the war on cannabis users that the plant the plant was free and we were free to do what we want and yet this is what they've given us this bastardized version of liberty they, they've shackled our feet but unshackled our hands and gone you're free and it's like hold on this yeah. isn't quite what we asked for and i think it's right. it's going to take a couple of years but i do look forward to the rallies and the marches and you know hopefully the legacy of like the 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 boston cannabis march and, and things like that you know the global cannabis march that we do every uh may that these then instead of being as they are co-opted for these movements towards corporate legalization they, they become more grassroots based for this emphasis that we want to be free to to work with cannabis not to buy it from idiots that currently criminalize us but to liberate ourselves from their criminalization. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, like, they, you know, they, you know, they stopped arresting us, but they won't give us an opportunity. <laughs> and so, like, where, you know, where's the middle ground on that? Like, you know, yeah. all right, we're not getting arrested anymore. But what I see moving forward is a lot more 
corporate cannabis uh, rallying against, you know, home grows um, and, and stuff like that, you know, and, it, and uh, you know, it's, it's a big thing here in the States. Uh, and like for me personally, like I was saying before, you know, I want home grows. I want more people to grow. That means more people are going to buy seeds from me. You know what I mean? And that's just not here in the States. That's all around the world now, you know, with the, with the internet, you know, we're talking, you know, and, you know, you know, I have people in Europe and Thailand and in, in Australia. I mean, I've sent, I've sent seeds all around the world. And so, I mean, I find that just, you know, really, that's one of the most amazing things that I really find, you know, and that we're able to connect on that level, but still trying to, we still all, you know, have the same, I think, end goal or whatever, where, you know, everyone wants to have an opportunity uh, to do whatever they want to do. If you just want to have a home grow and make your own medicine or, you know, or if you want to have a small mom and pop shop and, or if you want to do an edibles thing, or, I mean, there's so many opportunities for people to uh, get into uh, some type of, uh, you know, of the business, you know, and it's a shame that, you know, that they're just kind of uh, strangleholding us. Like you said, putting the shackles on us and not letting us compete. That's all I want to do is be able to compete. Exactly that. I don't just want to be offered a bud tender job. I don't just want to be offered an assembly line minimum wage role. I want in those to- in those jobs. Let me tell you, they're like factory workers. When you work in those facilities, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. The only thing you're doing is some people are just spraying pesticides all day. Some people are just watering all day. Some guys are just transplanting all day. You know, it's like you know when you're doing all that yourself, you're not doing it the same thing repetitiously day after day after day. One day you might be doing this next day. You're doing that, whatever. So it breaks that monotony up. But when you're in a commercial facility and your main job is to go around and, 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 and suit up and, and spray pesticides when the lights are off. I mean, that's just a fucking horrible job. Yeah, man, exactly. And it's, Henry Ford and others kind of figured this out with the creation and the perfection of the assembly line was it was a way of breaking unions. It was a way of breaking uh, this, the accrued skill of the individual that if you broke them into components, you can train them to be a, a cog, but that cog will never understand how to replicate the machine. And unless you get everybody to leave the factory and set up their own, they're not going to be able to compete. And it was a way to, to, keep people and i would don't want to use the sort of the the karl marx term of proletariat but the the working class the the uh indentured deliberate impoverished class stuck in these minimal roles where they will never accrue enough of a skill set to be able to use that facing forward to independently make money advance themselves yeah exactly and i think that's what we're seeing with this i mean I've seen some, I'm a bit of a technology nerd at times as well with some some of the stuff, but some of the things that I've seen approaching cannabis and is scary, like LiDAR technology and stuff that, that monitors plants. And I'm like, wait, so you, you are trying to make it so a human doesn't touch the plant. A plant goes in, in the seed and then is never to, like, whoa, 
so many right, yeah. red flags wow. going off in my head. It's like yeah. every, every morning I've got to say I love you to my girls. It's like, you know, how are you doing, ladies? How are you feeling? And it's it, you build that relationship with them, as you said before, of, of craft of a small facility. You, you physically have eyes on that plant. I don't care how good the cameras are with your 48K, whatever. It's not going to pick up. You're not going to be able to train the AIs to have the same intrinsic knowledge that growers do that can just suddenly go, there's something wrong in that plant. I don't know yet. Yeah. I don't. I can feel it. I'm just going to take yeah. her out, move her, and that is a skill that's it's it's beyond cognitive intelligence. It's like a horror intelligence. It's gut. It's your gut instinct. You can't program that into these machines, and that it worries me that the human element is going to be removed from it. So that as generations die off, they go, "Well, why do I need to grow my cannabis when I can buy it from a shop?" That the, even the art of, of growing cannabis becomes lost. No, you're, you're you're totally correct. And like what I like to say is like the plants talk to you. Like when you walk, go into the room, and just like you said, you know, you see one plant that's kind of, you know, and you're like, there's something wrong with that plant, you know. And and so when they're happy, they're like, you know, stretching for the lights, stretching for the sun. They look shiny. They look beautiful. And when they were kind of droopy and not looking right and, you know, you kind of know something's wrong. And, you know, I feel the same way, you know, there's a, there's a real connection between, between plants and humans, you know, just being, you know, it's kind of like, you know, almost like a dog or an animal, a pet in a sense, you know, and, you know, when you take really good care of it, and you know it's going to perform to to its maximum potential, and and that's what you and that's all you could really ask for is, is to try to be able to maximize the potential of the plant, you know, and um, you know just knowing all these little you know nuances and tricks and you know uh, it all you know it all makes uh, a difference in the end, you know. Uh, you know, I've heard, you know, people saying the same thing where they got, they got dripping meters in there and, you know, they're, you know, and it's just like, you know, when you take the human, you, when you take the human element out of it, I think you've lost something for sure. And it just makes it that much more on the commercial size, size where, you know, and I guess it depends on how you look at it. You know, like I see, I, I consider my plants almost like pets, whereas, people that are trying to monetize the plant to its full uh, monetary potential to sees that as a money tree to sees it as dollars and it doesn't it, you know it you know it doesn't quite work like that you know because you got to be able to love the plant to maximize the plant exactly that i mean look at what happens in the the legacy industry you know one guy grows a bulk buyer comes and buys five guys buy five from them then buy and then you've ended up with 10 15 dealers 10 15 people employed you think all of the people that are coming in buying from them that are then providing liquidity to that micro economy and that is repeated on mass across the world it's if you then suddenly create this corporate system you're then denying thousands of jobs because it's again like the security systems and everything else a cannabis grow yeah if you then need security guards okay that should be a person someone should be making a wage from that 
this we have on my, we're now just past eight billion people globally. We have a lot of people that need, unfortunately, under this current system, and without showing too much of my politics, we need fiat currency. We need physical tender to be able to trade for the things that we need. Whereas what cannabis can do as a resource is it, it's an infinitely replaceable resource. One seed, one plant, clone, boom. When you look at it then in industry in industrial applications, that's when it gets really scary. And I think that's where home grow is terrifying to them, is that then the conceptual idea, the way if I can just grow a couple of plants and I can get a drug from it, what if we then got together, we could then grow homes from it. We now know we can make batteries, floors, concrete. Um, do you know what I mean? There's a plethora of other uh, byproducts of cannabis that we're discarding. I mean, the commercial cannabis industry in the US at the minute is terrifying in, when you look at its waste because the biomass from flower producers, your license means you can't you can't do anything with it. You have to destroy it. Whereas well, that, yeah. that could be building carbon negative homes. It could be making you know uh, carbon uh, graph uh, cannabis graphene batteries, uh, supercapacitor batteries that are more conductive than lithium. There are all of these other potential industries that should be there, but it's not. It's about how many plants can you get in that tiny space? What is the gram per watt? What is your X, Y? And it's not about the product or the excitement of the breeder that's in there going, oh my God, yeah, we've just got this new thing and we're playing it. They're so far and few between because they're, the guys that are in there now, they're basically in the office and their boss is pressuring them and going, we better make this pound per watt uh, estimation or else it's your head. You know what I mean? And they're getting in cheaper and cheaper labor. I mean, I've just seen, was it Oklahoma? There's a story that's emerging, uh, I think yesterday, um, of five Chinese nationals uh, that were shot and killed at a, a, a farm and oh. one of the uh, owners or proprietors has been arrested. So we obviously then you look at Oregon and the or uh, Southern Oregon, Northern California border. Um, there's still issues going on in some of the towns there where the sheriffs are called declaring um, states of like local emergency to get extra funds because they're being inundated with, with gangs that are, gr are growing now. It just, there are these issues where the same rogue elements that preyed on and operated in the legacy industry that weren't us that came to you know buy our product on mass that would then grow uh, cannabis cultivars knowing that they were putting PGRs they were putting potentially harmful and deadly chemicals within it um, just to, to use it as a as a cash crop they're popping back into this gray area. And it's it's frustrating that again there are these elements. There's going to be that war, as you sort of describe it, of the corporate cannabis against. They're going to use these rural criminal elements and say that it's our fault, and we're still here. And well, we never got to go off the start line. You never opened our gate. You opened the gate for you lot and for the international cartels that could come in and profit from your ignorance and your shortfall from the fact that you can't provide a quality product. Yeah, no, in anything like that, you're just going to get, you know, you're going to get elements like that, you know. Um, the, the one thing I can say, you know, you know, even though it's still going on, it, it's becoming lesser and lesser, you know, th those type of incidents because just of the, the legality of everything. Um, you know, when things were illegal, it was kind of like the Wild West and, you know, people fought for control of certain markets and so on and so forth. And, all that is kind of lessening, even though, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's still going on. Um, you know, that, you know, the, the, you know, cause 
you know, the, the stuff that those guys are going to be producing are going to be probably just as good as a commercial, whatever they're, they're, they're producing, you know, because uh, most of those Chinese gangs and, um, you know, they're just, you know, just more on the commercial mindset than um, your, your regular small craft grower, you know? So, um, you know, there's going to, you know, even, so even when you break down craft now, you know, you, you know, you got your, your, your real true craft people that, you know, just doing home grows, but then on the other side of that, you're going to have more sophisticated, uh, uh, gang type of, uh, elements, uh, organized crime, um, you know, you got Mexican cartels, you got the Chinese, uh, the Vietnamese, all of them are involved in um, uh, cannabis, growing cannabis. You know, there's a few other groups uh, as well. And um, yeah, uh, you know, uh, the, the only thing they really do is kind of flood the market with commercial, commercial weed. And, you know, like right now, I mean, there's just a, oversaturation you go into new york city and it's just like there's a dispensary or a truck or uh somewhere a small stand on on like every corner you know and it's like you know and and you know me just out of curiosity you know i go and look to see what these guys are selling and you know is anything good and the the majority of it is just all commercial booth you know and uh so really, um, you know, trying to, you know, if you're able to establish yourself and, you know, really, you know, as a craft guy, you only want a small little piece, you know, there's a little, little piece of, of the market, you know, because, you know, most, most of the market isn't connoisseur, you know, most of it's commercialized. So, you know, you just want to be able to be able to concentrate and know who you got to know who your customers are. You got to know who, what is your brand? You know, like for me, I could say most of my customers are more educated, older type of people. You know, you know, you're, you're going to get some younger kids there that, you know, that fall into that category, but, but, but the majority of those younger kids are going to be, you know, uh, they're going to be influenced by marketing and, and, and stuff like that, you know, so they don't really have the knowledge. And when someone like that comes up to my booth and they start asking me all kinds of questions, I usually tell them, you know what, you're probably better off not buying my seeds because my seeds are too expensive. I was like, you know, you're better off maybe, you know, going, learning a little bit more and, and then come back and, and check me out in, in, in a couple of years. You know what I mean? Cause um, you know, the last thing I want is someone, you know, buying a 150 or 200 pack of seeds and they go and fuck them up and they, and then they try to blame me for it. And um, so, you know, I try to, you know, so I, you know, try to focus on, you know, uh, the people when they come up to my booth, they're like, give me a pack of this pack of that and pack of that. They already did their research. They already know who I am. They already know what they want. That's my kind of customer. When I got a, when a customer comes up to my booth and I got to try to sell them, that's not my customer. I'm not, I'm not a salesman really. You know what I mean? Like I'm not a bullshitter. Like I like to say that my work speaks for itself. And if you don't know about my work, then you should go and research it and you should research anyone that you're going to be buying seeds from 
And so, you know, a, a lot of it really just falls back to the knowledge of the consumer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. You were, you raise an interesting point, and I suppose for my UK audience, uh, it, it, I, I just kind of wanted your, your opinion on it, really, because Stardog's ubiquity, it's basically uh, interchangeable with sort of Albanian-grown cannabis here in the UK. So obviously, Europe in general, for all Albania, I think, is population less than 3 million people. Um there are criminal organizations of Albanian nationals that are operating in most of uh, northern and southern Europe, uh, just Europe in general, uh, toward the sort of western end, uh, running cocaine as well as as cannabis. Um, and here in the UK, the price of Stardog, so they grow Stardog and Amnesia Haze as two basically bulks. They've moved into sort of Wedding Cake and a few of the uh, the newer genetics that are out there um, that are um, sort of quite popular or were quite popular when they moved into them. But they're able to drop boxes in regions, kilos in regions that are hundreds of pounds, thousands of pounds, sometimes cheaper than any hobbyist, than any craft producer can, can grow. And it's having this sort of effect where as I sort of said before, to some to the cannabis buyer, the people who just go to their dealer and goes, I want weed. They, they don't care about strains. They don't want to learn anything about any of that. They just want to get high. They want to go buy their weed. When they're continually being faced with sort of startup, it's harming the the reputation of it in the same way you were saying before, if like a poor grower then grows some genetics and, and kills the plant or, you know, has, creates nutrient lockouts, deficiencies, you know, has issues with soil pH or whatever. Um then yeah, it ends up harming sort of that that reputation. Um, so I was just wondering on your thoughts as obviously the ubiquity of, of Stardog, then now getting that kind of tainted reputation. I just wondered how it made you feel. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I get exactly what you're saying. Um, and I guess that can happen with the commercialization of any popular, anything mm-hmm. popular because you know things get renamed things are called star dog they're not even even star dog you know so um you know when it's it's kind of like when you know you call something the crippy or the piff or you know like it just it, it's uh kind of a you know it it, it it seems like it almost becomes almost kind of a catch name of of quality mm-hmm. you, you know uh, to begin with, but then it gets commercialized so much on the other side that that kind of get that that kind of gets lost in the translation of the of the weed itself, you know. And this is what I would tell people: you know, if you think Star Dog sucks, buy a pack and grow it out yourself, and then talk to me. That's what I like to tell people, you know, because just because someone slapped the name Star Dog on the bag. Maybe it is Stardog. Maybe it was shittily grown, uh, and maybe it's not even Stardog, and they're just using a name, you know, to try to uh, to sell the weed. So, um, you know, I, I don't I don't take you know uh, too too much offense to that because um, I just know that the commercialization of anything popular, you know, and, you know, it's the same thing kind of like here with cookies, like, you know, cookies is kind of, 
you know, more or less kind of like a commercialized, blandish, you know, um, that's how people, you know, how some people look at it. That's how I look at it. And that was from experience. I'm not just saying that because I'm a hater. If it was that good, I would be like, it is really that good. You know what I mean? Like I can appreciate that. But when they try to, uh, put something that's mid grade or blandish and they try to put it up on this pedestal of something of greatness. And then you finally have the experience and you're like, what the fuck man? Like, and so I kind of see the same thing with star dog where people have an anticipation, um, you know, they've heard about it and then they experience it and they're disappointed. Mm. Yeah. And I think actually then, it's a backhanded compliment, really, then, isn't it? If people are then saying it's crap because others are right. <laughs> saying that, oh, ours is crap, we're going to call it the good thing. It's, yeah, it's, it's a good backhanded kind of compliment. Um, yeah, it's interesting. We we had the same sort of position with, uh, with, with cheese for many years here in the UK, and it was, again, just the ubiquity of it. It was because of the mass availability of it that, um, that it was so highly sought after. Uh, sorry, that yeah that it was so highly sought after that once people realized that okay we can produce this and produced it on mass and again just oversaturated the market and then through various raids and through syndicates kind of breaking down we we kind of lost the genetics and as soon as it was out of people's consciousness there's that nostalgia effect kind of came in and people were like oh i really miss i really miss cheese but right, but what happened is where they went from cheese to star dog mm-hmm, and now yeah. they'll go from star dog to whatever the next one is, you know? So it's, you know, it's going to be an, an, an ongoing evolutionary yeah. thing, I think. Yeah. I think Skittles is probably another one that's quite likely to replace that, um, that it's being crossed with everything and it's sold on its own sort of marketing, um, but yeah, it's interesting how like certain, just a, a cultivar name becomes, a colloquial term or an accepted term for for good cannabis. I mean, we had that with, with skunk in the UK for many, many years uh, to our detriment because then the papers picked up on it and went, well, this skunk weed is dangerous, this right. skunk weed. And it was just like, and they were saying it as if it was, it's, it was different. They understood it was different to other weeds, but they, 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 they yeah. couldn't, they didn't really describe it or really give anything about it. Well, they started a hysteria, a public, they tried to start a public hysteria over it. Like people were overdosing on it and doing all kinds of weird things. And I forget what, what I was reading all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. But they call it uh, skunk psychosis is still a term we see. And it's, yeah, it's interesting. There are, I'll put a big allegedly here. Uh, for if this ends up in court at any point, the big allegedly um, allegations made by some quarters of the UK scene that GW Pharmaceuticals, now owned by Jazz Pharmaceuticals out in Ireland, um, paid journalists to uh, perpetuate this in right-wing newspapers. Again, I'm I'm not going to name the papers even if I do put an allegedly there because they've got many, many, many lawyers and I'm just a a small little stoner. (laughs) But yeah, it's interesting how... um, those mechanisms, those historic mechanisms now that we're moving into these legal markets around the world, it's, yeah, it's interesting to watch the the war of these various companies. You can almost see the interests of the CEOs playing out in the debates of, you know, countries like Luxembourg and and, uh, Switzerland and Germany and others. It's, they're not doing it all of a sudden because they were like, oh, we were so bad to our 85 million, however many million Germans there are in the world. Uh, 
I'm not even going to guess at what the German population is. A race that I didn't happen. La la la. Whatever the German population is. Um, so it's it's. Mm, I don't think it's about liberalisation. I think it's these commercial interests landing in Europe that are now forcing the hand of, of certain politicians. Going, this is a vote winner. You can say you're going to legalise cannabis, but they won't ever get to grow it. They won't ever get to do anything with it. Don't worry, they'll think they will. But the rest of us will get to do what we want. And so I think that's what we're we're seeing sort of as a consequence of American commercialization through these through legalization is so much power and influence and it's le- leaking out into the rest of the world. And uh, yeah. It's odd. No, you're a hundred percent right, because really uh America is the one that set the standard for I- illegal cannabis. You know, they re- they went around the world making cannabis illegal in legal countries, you know. And now, you know, now, you know, uh, 50 years later or whatever, you know, now America's leading the world in legal cannabis. And, uh, you know, so now, you know, you, you got other countries, like you said, you know, that just follow or lead more or less. And, you know, they can kind of be like, well, if America's doing it, then we can do it. And, you know, if they realize the, you know, the monetary um, and tax benefits from all of that and, you know, the, you know, the jobs it creates. And I mean, when you really dive into it and see and look at the beneficial uh, effects that it can bring, um, I mean, look, look at Thailand now. I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, it's becoming a Mecca there from what I hear. And, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. As soon as they announced Thailand, I immediately began sort of celebrating it as an opportunity for a population driven revolution rather than a corporate down, um, enslavement. And that's how they're rolling it out for the people. They're letting the people get, get involved. You know, you're not going to tell, some guy, you know, uh, that he can't apply for a license while someone else over there is doing it. Over there, they have o- open markets. You know, they it isn't like they only can find uh, alcohol licenses to a certain number. They they let uh, let the whole thing uh, wide open and, and let the market, you know, uh, uh, correct itself. And that's the way it should be in any in any uh, open market. Well, that's what these neoliberals preach is, is, yeah, is free market economics, which is supply and demand, yet they are restricting demand and basically gaslighting us, saying there isn't the supply. And it's like, well, uh, wait, what are they? Sorry, the other way around. Uh, they're gaslighting us, saying that there isn't this demand while controlling supply, when actually the more cannabis that there is, all it means is that cannabis as a commodity gets cheaper which isn't necessarily a bad thing because then crap weed will then be cheap for the people that want their commercial and don't know any better. And craft will retain its value in the same as it does with, with alcohol. You can go and buy Budweiser, but the microbrewery economy is, is massive and people will pay three times, four times as much for something that they know that they, they enjoy, that they really appreciate for all it is yeah, still a smaller market. Most people don't want to be Steve Jobs. They don't want to be Mark Zuckerberg. Yet it feels like a lot of, I I keep using the derogatory term Chad, but these Chads in the industry, these these new money kids that are coming in, they want to be the Budweiser of cannabis, the Starbucks of cannabis, without realizing the culture doesn't want a Starbucks of cannabis. It doesn't want, do do you know what I mean? No, I think... 
Okay. People want is more small regionalized, you know, suppliers. You know, mm-hmm. they want someone in their hometown or someone they might know or, you know, uh, someone that does craft. And uh, you know, and you bring up a good point. In whereas, you know, you're going to have, you know, a lot of the uh, smaller, cheaper, commercialized. Um, customers and then you're going to have you know the more higher end micro type of customers and so really what does that tell you that tells you there's room for everyone you know there's room there's room for a micro guy there's room for a commercial guy you know there's always going to be more of a younger commercial crowd in my eyes because they just don't have they just don't have the experience and with that a lot of them don't even know what what um illegal cannabis is whereas most of us older people have gone through that you know i mean i I don't think there's going to be a lot more older people smoking cannabis just because it's legal now you know they made that they made that decision years ago and i'm sure they had some type of experience with it whereas now these younger kids just come up and it's just like drinking um some beer or or, or alcohol when you're when you're when you're 21 whereas mm-hmm. it was more of a you know m- more it was you know what back then it was you know when it was illegal it was just you know, some people just didn't want to touch it just because of that. Yeah. So it, by its nature, then it, yeah, exactly. It normalizes it so that once right. you become of age, it's a rite of passage. So I think as we kind of alluded to before, though, there's, there's almost a mathematic formula that could be sort of um, deduced from this, that as they get older and have more experience, they would then naturally start to, if this system continues, it creates this natural divergence where the older the person gets, the further away from the commercial element they are likely to become. Because if they get, we are actually, that's not true. That would be true if they have the experience of the other of the illicit market, of the gray market, of the legacy industry. So this is, I guess, what they're banking on. Their business model is based on that eventually the people who know the legacy industry know what good weed, I say good weed, as if all, I'm not saying all commercials bad and all all legacy is good, but in a general sense, the quality I've, I've found in, in the illicit market over legal markets where I've traveled is far better and continues to be better, hence the reason those markets proliferate. But if they can somehow keep that away and those people that produce that just, just die off just generationally it becomes less of a thing to do again it takes us back to that point of i just i worry that the people who want and deserve as we all do an opportunity to cultivate a relationship with cannabis in the same way you can have house plants or you can get a pet or as you said before it's just it's it, be- it belongs to the people ultimately and i think that any movement that isn't based on the people being liberated to do what they want with it first is exploitation it's profiteering from well, continuing prohibition, not ending it. No, I agree. Hmm. Um, there's a couple of points on here that I wanted to to ask you as well, and I sort of mentioned in the intro there. Uh, I don't know if this is a point of controversy or contention with yourself, but I did want to ask if you could maybe tell us sort of the story of New York City Diesel and the original New York City Diesel and sort of why they're... Um, sort of considered separate um yeah like i had mentioned earlier the 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 chem 91 was referred to as you know 
the original diesel, the original, you know, the original, you know, the the New York City diesel, you know, and so uh, I guess it was sometime in the early two thousands, I guess that I guess Soma had um, from, from the from the from the story that I re- remember, he acquired um, some bag seed. I think someone had given him. Uh, someone was in New York City and had bought a bag of diesel and um he found some seeds in it and he um grew them out and bred with them and created the 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 new york city diesel the soma new york city diesel with it and at the time like you know us in new york were kind of offended because we're like yo like how does some guy in amsterdam get off by saying you know he has diesel from new york city and, you know, and when I did finally get to experience some of the um, Soma diesel, um, it was nothing like what we that what, what we had in uh, in New York at the time. Uh, mo- most of the stuff that was going around at that time was a sour diesel. So I and so I assume that that's the bag seed that he got. You know, like I said, the 91 was, you know, was nicknamed that but was not really um marketed under that diesel name so it was kind of a kind of a side name for it. and i think soma kind of picked up on that and tried to really try to monetize you know the whole thing to his benefit without really the true representation of what it was you know and so mm-hmm. uh yeah so fun you know so you know, everyone took a little bit of offense to that. You know, it wasn't you know nothing personal. But then, as I you know, as I, as I started breeding and getting more successful and started moving a little bit more forward, you know, I was like, "Fuck him!" I was, "I'm making the, I'm making the original New York City diesel, and I'm just going to put the O in front of it, just like they did in Amsterdam with all of the stuff, all the knockoff." You know, he, cause the way I looked at it is he knocked us off and then I knocked him off, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's where the original comes from because, you know, people, and that was really a similar tactic in Amsterdam where someone would have something like the, the haze, everyone called it the haze. Well, I have the original haze, the real haze, you know? So a lot of it is just kind of like m- m- marketing uh, stuff in, um, yeah, so I, I, you know that's really where that kind of stems from. Yeah, see, it, it's it's interesting because from a lot of the breeders that I speak to, again, you, you're not creating something that is an end product. It is by its nature an evolving line of lineage of, of its genetics, um, and most people just want to be not even like honored in it, but to have their genetic referenced. If you then get to mention its parents and its in its its lineage. Give it the correct names, because in doing that, you honor the breeder. You don't need to say this by this guy. The people that know, know. And in the future, people will be able to then back and go, actually, and, and document who's done what. It doesn't need the same accreditation as it is today in the kind of co-branding. But it is just that basic kind of, I suppose, respect in saying that this is this. You're not trying in any which way, either by intention or accidentally, to mislead anyone, you know? Yeah, and that's kind of how I always try to market my strains. I always try to make it some type of uh, connection to the parents, um, you know, and then sometimes you get the total direct opposite, whereas, 
the dirty taxi as per se, like, you know, that, you know, there's no real, real, uh, linkage to the, to, to the parents other than maybe the dirty factor, you know? Um, so, you know, um, the name game is kind of funny sometimes. Um, I always try to keep it, uh, relative to the source, uh, this way, you know, this, this, like you explained, you got some type of reference or whatever. And, um, you know, even if you're using, you know, someone else's genetics or whatever, you know, it isn't like you're copying it. You're just trying to, you know, make a different version of it using different stuff or advancing the, the genetics in uh, some type of way. Mm. Yeah, exactly that. And I think as long as there's sort of that open and honest, uh, kind of conversation there through pardon me uh the branding and, and whatever else then yeah i think we're all quite happy for for that to continue yeah and just another point on that you know just i've always tried to like i've never really like tried to hide any of the, the breedings or or whatever to me like you know someone that wants um you know say just say chem dog and they can't get the real chem dog clone or whatever then they want to, you know, they're going to want to buy a pack of seeds that's going to be closest to that, you know? And so that's kind of how I've tried, you know, and, and tried to be transparent, be uh, open about my breedings, being like, yeah, I am going to cost the 91 into whatever. And, you know, uh, this way you kind of build uh, an anticipation, a kind of a little bit of a hype, and in uh, in this way, your customers will be like, oh well, I I want to get that ninety one or, or 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 whatever, you know, and just just trying to keep that openness, the transparency of what you're doing, and, and I think people uh, they appreciate that and they want to see that, and the internet is a you know another tool of being able to do that. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. Um, I think we've covered quite a lot of the questions I've got on here. Uh, I suppose actually I introduced you as being uh, Jersey born, but obviously since 2015, I think it says in my notes, I can't tell from my own scribble there. Uh, you've been living in Colorado. Can you sort of t tell us about that? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I had started growing in the, in the late nineties and um, around 2012 um i uh i was up at my upstate grow house and um the septic tank had blocked up and was unusable and i wasn't able to shower that that weekend and i had been cutting you know i had been harvesting mm. And I had been driving home. I was driving down in Jersey. I was kind of, you know, I've been driving for a couple hours and I mean, not m maliciously speeding, but just kind of not paying attention. I started going down a hill and, you know, I hit like 82 miles an hour. The, the speed limit was 75 and then it went up and then it went up and there was a cop on top of the shooting radar right down to the bottom of the hill. So he, so he caught, he, he got me right away. He pulled me over right away. He smelled weed, you know, yanked me out of the car. I mean, I might've had a couple grams on me. Uh, but, uh, unfortunately I had like an empty fertilizer bottle in my back trunk, which was, you know, not, you, you know, very sl sloppily of me. Usually I don't, 
uh, conduct myself about that. Um, the conversation then led into uh, growing weed. And if I had a house up in, up in New York, if I own property, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of knew where this was going to be going. Uh, the electric was in my name. Uh, everything was in my name. So really, uh, the, the New Jersey state police were just had to contact the New York state police. They could have ran my name. They would have saw that, uh, that my name would have popped up on a, uh, on a utility bill, which was kind of high. It would have probably prompted them to come out to do a walk around and investigation. And so when that happened, I was just like, that's it. I pulled the plug. Uh, I, I closed the house down. Um, you know, I, I had, you know, I did, I had to stop growing for a couple of years. I had to go through the whole, uh, legal procedures. I got a DWI. They just wound up really fucking me at the end. So once I like, you know, finished up all the legal stuff, I was just like, I'm out of here, you know, cause I, at the time I knew the potential that my company had. And the last thing I wanted to do was get caught up or go to jail in the legal system, have my hands tied, not being able to grow, have to deal with probation, uh, people coming over your house, the whole nine yards. So I just pulled the plug and then decided, you know, that I was going to move to a more friendlier uh, state where I was going to be able to, you know, continue my work. So uh, I came out to the Cannabis Cup in um, 2015. Well, I had been coming out here for, you know, a number of years, but I came out here. Um, a friend of mine from Michigan had just was, was in the process of moving out to Colorado's. So he was like, hey, come out and hang out with me for a couple of weeks and see if you could find something. So uh, in May, I came out for a couple of weeks. I started putting feelers out. Um, for if anyone knew a cannabis friendly landlord and luckily a friend of mine was using a guy and he had an extra house. And so I was able to, uh, you know, restart up and, um, you know, get things going again and then just slowly work myself back into, in, into the mix of things. Um, I wound up, you know, after the year was successful, I was able to save a bunch of money and I had some money, so then I bought a house up in the mountains, um, came out here, I went up there, and then, um, you know, I, my wife and, 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 and uh, family was still in New Jersey. Uh, we wound up putting the house up for sale and then uh, moving, out, mo moving out here full time pretty much. And it was really to... It was really to escape the, uh, you know, law enforcement and, uh, you know, getting caught up. You know, my main thing was, you know, you get caught up in these probation things. They got you piss testing. They got you jumping through hoops. They're, they're showing up at your house randomly and all that. You know, I, you know, I can't, you know, I had gone through that numerous times previously mm -hmm. and I just wasn't going to do it again. I was just at the end of my wits and I was just like, that's it. I'm moving. And really, it really opened up an opportunity for me to really get exposed to the commercial end of it more, where I had no experience whatsoever in any of these commercial facilities or whatever. Um, I was able to hook up with uh, Be Good. I ran their um, I, I ran their grow for like a year and a half. 
in the end, things didn't work out. We uh, split, you know, uh, you know, as friends. And then I, you know, got uh, a year went by and then uh, Chuck Lemon, my friend, um, you know, he was, he's part of the Verde group and, you know, he got a conversation started down there. I met uh, Julian, the guy that does um, the, um, you know, he, he does all the extracts. He does uh, um, the rosin production and, and stuff. So he was more interested in finding uh, hash producing strains. So, um, you know, their main thing is, you know, uh, is, is rosin, is hash. So they, you know, was, was trying to, is trying to find the stuff that's going to give them the best product. So, you know, I gave them a list of seeds. Uh, we wound up doing a big pheno hunt. You know, I mean, they bought, I mean, like 200 seeds of one strain we've hunted in, in a couple of instances and stuff. And um, so just being able to, to get exposed to that kind of as broad and you know everything for myself and my you know and to see actually what is the other side like the commercial side and you know like i you know like i said i ran a, a, a spot myself for a year and a half and uh yeah it's not it's not a lot of fun at the end i had lost my passion i knew it was time to hang it up i was miserable i didn't want to go to work every day um, you know, just the, the testing procedures, you know, there, there were, there were multiple reasons why it didn't work out, you know, and, and that's just the way that it was. It was kind of a lear learning curve for me, but I think in the end, I made the right decision on moving out here. Um, I would love to get back into New York or New Jersey at some point, but, um, you know, I, I need to go back to something. I need to have an opportunity, a license, um, some type of, you know, because I, like I said, I could just stay doing doing what I'm doing here and I'll be fine. But, you know, I would definitely want to try to take the next step uh, in the legal market and at least try to be able to, to compete because I think I have a brand that can be just as big as cookies, you know. Uh, and built on substance and not, you know, some kind of uh, advertisements and mm. yeah. So yeah, and you should be offered that opportunity. This is uh, sort of as we've alluded to throughout this podcast. It is frustrating that that's not what legalization means, but it should. It should mean that fair opportunity. You are in the land of the American dream. It's you're all supposed to have the same opportunity to be able to make it. Yet the legislation around cannabis in diff obviously is different by different states. I mean, now what is it? Over fifty percent of the population have got access to adult use in some in some way because of the way the populations are situated in various states. Um, yeah those people are not given the opportunity to participate truly in the market. They may be able to, as we say, get an entry level job, but it's not the same as getting into an, any other industry. There isn't going to be the same um, ascension through, through the ranks because of the specification and the, the breaking down of the roles so that people are never really learning how to grow one plant, how to really understand it, to observe it, to spend enough time to build experience with it. And I think that's very sad. Yeah, well, like like here in Colorado, like um, 
you know, and a lot of it's market-based, you know, you really got to know your market. You know, I came from a very high-end market, you know, New York, New Jersey. Uh, people have a lot, they, they make a lot of money. They have a lot of expend, expendable uh, income. Uh, people want the best of the best uh, and they're willing to pay for it, you know. I'm sure uh, LA, uh, Miami, uh, New York, you know, uh, you know, you're going to get them, you're going to get those type of high end markets that will people with money will, will, will pay, you know, where here in Colorado in Denver, you know, the, the mark, you know, there's not as many people, people aren't making as much money, you know, so, uh, you know, you, you know, so you got to really know know the market you're getting into, and like here in Colorado, they were the first state to really go wreck, so they really went overboard on a lot of the regulations, you know, because they knew that like everyone that had the microscope microscope on them, everyone was watching what Colorado was doing. Oh, they're gonna fuck it up, you know what I mean? And that's the one thing that they were, so they went over regulated everything because they didn't want to get that you know stereotype pinned on them you know and then once california opened up and you know it, 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 it's kind of loosened up in, in, in a little bit but like to get into the market here i mean you you know to buy in you're just gonna, you're gonna need millions of dollars and then you're buying into a market that's shit you know a lot of these people i see they they, they uh invest 10 million 20 million dollars in a facility and it's like i'm, I'm thinking like how the hell are you ever going to get your money back? Like, how long is it going to take you to get your money back if you get your money back? You know, because the thing about um, the cannabis is, is like, you know, as is as is expanding across across the states. You know, um, the only thing that really made it worth anything was the fact that it was a, it was illegal. You know, and so now when you see in it open it up more and it's get, getting more oversaturated now now that you're seeing that you know the prices are just kind of like just bottoming out you know what i mean where you know where it might have been where it's not even uh feasible to do a, a profitable business you know because if you you know uh you know you got you know you, you got to pay your rent you got to pay to keep the lights on you got to keep you got to pay your employees you got to pay for supplies you need you need all of that to keep your business open, and so like and, and if you can't keep up with any of that stuff, and that's even before you even you know not even saying how much money or profit you're going to make at the end, you know, and so like what I found out is is like you you work harder and you make less money, you know, in in, in legal weed, and that's just that's just the fact, and I think it you know as it opens up more, it's just going to be becoming more and more like that unless you can establish yourself as a you know find that niche in in the market that you know that that you're going to be able to to make money and you know here in colorado you know you got to be involved in flour you got to be involved in edibles you got to be involved in concentrates you got to be involved in anything that makes money across the board and if you put all of those together you might make a little bit of money if you're lucky, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it, you know, it's just getting worse and worse. And like you were saying, these corporations and big money, they can just sit on a market for 
X amount of years and just write that money off and just force everyone else out of business, bottom out the market, and then mark up the market once you have no more competitors. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I fear is is happening. Um, and actually, is a good segue on to sort of my next point. I fear the same individuals, the same... I often sort of have a Freudian slip and call them vulture capitalists rather than venture capitalists. Um, but the same people who have sort of bastardized cannabis legalization and now moving into psychedelic reform. So obviously your current uh, resident state, Colorado, in the midterms in November passed Prop 122, uh, decriminalizing natural psychedelics. Um, I obviously see the uh, Grateful Dead um, uh, banner behind you there. So I just want yeah. to kind of get, get your opinion on sort of this new wave of psychedelic sort of revolution, mainly being, I suppose, corporate, it feels corporate led uh, to the, to us in Europe, but in America, obviously these are um, population driven. It's a citizen's initiative. So I just wanted to get sort of your opinion on it and what, what you, uh, what you know about it. No, you're, you're, you're right about that. Um, it's really, you know, population driven, um, I think it's been proven that, you know, microdosing um, mushrooms and, and, and psychedelics has a big effect on PSTD patients and, you know, uh, people that have suffered uh, trauma. And, um, yeah, I think it's definitely going to be a small niche market. Um, it's going to be really small, I think, because people aren't going to be using psychedelics at the same rate that they use cannabis. Mm-hmm. You know, I could, I could speak for myself. You know, I only use psychedelics maybe a few times a year. I'm going to a show or a special event or something like that. Um, but there are people that need, need that medicine on a daily basis. And um, I think it's, you know, it's just opening the door for, more research, you know, to try to help these t- people. Um, you know, I don't know if the profit margins are going to be there like cannabis as per se. Um, I mean, if you look at kind of like Amsterdam where they, you know, had a similar thing with uh, mushrooms and chocolates and stuff like that. Um, I think you'd have to be more in a tourist type of environment. Um you know, if you're just talking about regular usage, you know, uh, like I said before, uh, I think regular usage is probably more geared towards um, uh, medicine and um, helping people uh, on that level. Mm. Yeah, well, I think I, I agree. I think you're uh, you're right. Obviously, the market will, by its nature, sort of be smaller, but maybe more profitable per product, uh, if that sort of makes sense because there isn't really going to be the same established market for it. So it isn't about competing for the cheapest price, as it, as it were. Uh, it's interesting that it was natural psychedelics was sort of the terming of it. So it's included DMT, mescaline, but I don't believe mescaline derived from peyote. And I think that was done for some grounds of uh, it being protected under tribal uh, grounds. Because when I was in Colorado, I drove through the north, where my where which was which northwest uh, through a place called Mesa, uh, met with uh, an activist and a farmer up there, and uh, she was growing peyote cactuses in the front box 
on uh, on the home property and i was just like what the fuck and she's like because she's tribe uh, from a, a one of the regional tribes and it was the houses on tribal lands and it was explaining i was like wow that's amazing but it's interesting that the the language in this includes expungement for previous convictions for people uh caught or convicted um in trafficking possessing etc any of these substances home production is technically uh, allowed in this so self-sufficiency for people who want to cultivate their own mushrooms um the gift economy loophole that was in colorado from 2012 till the first sort of uh dispensaries opened up in 2014 will also be there so theoretically we could end up with sort of a, a farmer's market of these sort of compounds and treatment centers is another one that's interesting in there that as you say its effects on ptsd on trauma on uh, addiction we, we notice the cessation of addictive tendencies when people take psilocybin containing mushrooms you know there are people will have a dmt or ayahuasca experience and come back and say they're irrecoverably different they are no longer traumatized by something that has plagued them for 30 40 years um and i think that th this is is powerful um in the hands of people with passion and with care there is obviously a great culture of people that are trained trip sitters uh that have taken you know their skill set there's a great culture in in uh, america and in, in california that grew out of the movement when psychedelics were first criminalized and they kept doing the underground therapies and doing the research and the work and it is on the backs of those those sort of great people that we kind of know what we're doing i guess what my fear is because what we're seeing i'll explain it over here in the uk so there is investigations being done on DMT for alcoholism, LSD for, for alcoholism, uh, mushrooms for uh, depression and anxiety and various other uh, iterations of the compounds and, and illness. But we've already seen in the UK two places, I think Bristol and London, you can get ketamine infusions at £6,000 a pop. So it's this, I fear that again, it's this classist kind of restricting that the people who need this most, the people who are traumatized by their socioeconomic position, you know, they can't afford to feed themselves. They work to death doing 80 hours a week and don't have enough to cover rent. Their kids are starving. Their bills are overpaid. You know, these are the people that need access to these kind of things to help them deal with the day-to-day -day reality, but they're going to be priced out of the market for the official therapies. And, Obviously, Colorado, less than, than uh, not Colorado, but they're kind of the rest of the world. Obviously, Oregon as well, maybe. And there's a few of the different uh, regions in the states that are looking at this. But the rest of the world, if you utilize these compounds yourself without a doctor, without permission, you're a criminal. Yeah, and I guess you can kind of compare it to medical cannabis in a way, you know, where, you know, the, the medical programs were set up for people that were sick. That had cancers and you know um, you know real real serious you know life threatening uh, ailments and you know it's one thing to um, you know make money off a recreational market but in my eyes it's a, a totally different when you're making money off and, and exploiting sick people that need medicine to live. And so I think there's going to have to be some type of uh, line or program that was um, similar to cannabis, where they have a medical program where the prices are, are, are cheaper, uh, you need to qualify for. And, um, 
and, and that kind of stuff because uh, you know you know if you're going to just exploit you know uh, create a market to exploit people, um, I, I just don't think that that's right. Yeah, uh, I agree, and I said that that is my fear that America is kind of based on the principle of fuck Europe. Ultimately, if you look at its 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 foundation and its history, um, it is. I say that as in America, the both North, South, and the South America, just the Americas in general, are now in a stance of they're built on the colonial history of of, of Europeans, and so there is this intrinsic idea of freedom and of liberty in some form or some way. Obviously, people will argue in the comments, I'm sure, below about that statement. What I mean by that is this. That the individual freedom is prefaced is is still important, whereas then when these kind of evolutions of of uh, things within like the dr- creation of a cannabis drug industry, the creation of a psychedelic drug industry are coming to Europe, it's not about the individual's liberty or freedom. It's about can we make that money from them? Can we right. keep them controlled enough that our systems continue? Whereas I think that enough of these population and citizen-led initiatives in regions in America can kind of destabilize and un- underpin the the most the ills of capitalism that kind of rule the world the, the excess of neoliberalism to allow people to have more rational conversations to see the world in a, a more refined way do you know what i mean to actually perceive it rather than just being so traumatized by it that their lens that they see peer through from their little spaceship is so warped um yeah well you know the way i look at it is if you look you know, indigenous Indians, you know, a lot of that, you know, mushrooms, cannabis, all these things are naturally grown, you know, they're not manipulated, you know, they're not processed, you know, uh, these are natural growing uh, medicines, uh, you know, and that could be said all around the world. There's all types of plants that are, that become medicines, you know, and, uh, you know, and of course, you know, there's different effects, you know, that, that, that come in with, with different, um, different medicines. And, you know, so, you know, I think that everyone has been more focused on the effects and as in getting you high than the actual medical benefits that are on the other side of the coin that aren't even really haven't been explored or or even researched medically yet and you know uh it's people uh that have taken um taken it into their own hands Mm -hmm. and um have found that these these plants work for whatever ailments that they have and so you can't really argue with someone that is taking medicine that makes them better even though it's illegal exactly that and this is the argument that's kind of going on i suppose in the academic world of whether all drug use is in some way medicinal because the argument made by prohibitionists is these drugs are harmful, are always addictive, always deadly, and always dangerous. Yet when we, <laughs> sorry about that, when we look at the 
uh, World Health Organization has published statistics on this. It's around about, if you take an average across the board, 25% is generous. About 25% of people that take any substance have a potential to develop a problematic dependency with that substance. That means that 75%, the vast majority of people, don't have problematic interactions with these substances. That means that if it's not a negative experience, it's either a neutral experience or it's positive. And that's exactly where we're, we're missing uh the what we're missing from the conversation is that for decades we've been talking about the dangers and the harms of these things while minimizing and ignoring the potential benefits of it and now this it seems that they're focusing on capitalizing and commercializing the benefits of them without again understanding the cultural reasons as you described before your own personal psychedelic use it's a special occasions during the year it's at events or shows that's the cultural use of these these things with the the benefits that I have had while taking MDMA from then talking to strangers at festivals and at music gigs around around the country, I feel is far more invalu invaluable than that which I would have got from a psychiatric setting in a hygienic, homogenized uh, environment that I am frankly traumatized by because of my experience of being demonized and vilified as a drug user inside of that healthcare system whereas then my my self-guided use you know through reading and exploring uh the work of many great men before me uh, men and women before me uh that have written on this subject and then just going out and learning about it that has to exist in tandem with this that there will be people that will seek that clinical environment and don't want to risk sitting at home one night and you know eating five grams in darkness as terence used to say um but I think that there has to be that spectrum, as we described, of corporate and craft with cannabis. So this is why I'm really excited by what Colorado are doing there in that they, it looks like they're creating the space for it. And I hope that with Oregon being the first state to go first to decriminalize well, all a small, uh, small personal possession of all drugs, which included natural psychedelics, that Colorado won't then go as heavy handed on regulation as it did uh, with cannabis, as you mentioned before. Yeah, well, you know, to me, you know, they they always say, you know, cannabis is a stepping stone for harder drugs, lead you into heroin or whatever. But if you if you really, you know, in, in an addiction, you know, an addiction, you know, is is a personal thing, you know, uh, you got to be able to control yourself and know your limits. But you know, if you really want to start, you know, from you know, look look at caffeine. Look at tobacco, look at alcohol. If you want to start talking about, you know, uh, stepping stones of addiction, there there you go. You you, you just start, start off with those three right off the bat. Coffee, cigarettes, and liquor, you know. Uh, they are uh, legal. Uh, I'm pretty sure that, the, the you know, the... The deprimate, uh, you know, the the bad side of things have been documented. Alcohol kills, I don't know, you know, millions of people, you know, um, you know, and then then you you know then you go to cannabis, and it's like, well, how many people have died from cannabis? Now I'm sure there's been a lot of people have done some stupid shit and got ran over by a car, or you know, while they were high or did something stupid, but. I'm talking about the actual ingestion of cannabis. I don't think of any, I can't think of anyone that I have ever heard of that OD'd from cannabis. Mm -hmm. You know, so, uh, you know, so, you know, they like to, you know, use cannabis. It, it leads you to harder drugs, this and that. But, 
you know, I think that all starts way before that, you know, you, you're drinking coffee, you're drinking, you're smoking cigarettes and drink, drinking alcohol. I mean, if you, if you, if you don't get addicted from that, you know, uh, you know, cigarettes is one of the worst, probably one of the most highly addictive, uh, chemicals out there with all the stuff that they put into those cigarettes and they and we don't even know what they put into what kind of chemicals they put into that stuff you're not you're not smoking straight tobacco off the leaf you're you're you're, you're smoking a, a treated chemically treated leaf yeah yeah exactly you're smoking a plethora of other compounds and substances uh interestingly we did uh health and safety training for product earth which is the uk's largest cannabis event um the three-day expo uh, down in in the south and part of that we learned how the the average white paper the chalk uh, produced white paper that's a cigarette paper contains 33 chemical compounds known to be addictive in and of themselves that are only added because they are also addictive in themselves so it's the plethora and the combination of these things and yeah uh, you entirely correct to highlight those three but i would also add a fourth and that is sugar I often, yeah. I often, I often, I often quip that here in the UK, that <laughs> most people's first dealer is Haribo, because yeah. your mom and your dad, they they did develop that addiction in you, so you'll behave. Same with like McDonald's, any of these other things that then have additive preservatives, things that we know are there to improve snackability, tastiness, long-lasting flavor, all of these other. Orwellian manipulations of language, which are meaning, no, you're creating something that artificially remains longer so the body craves it, no matter how you want to disguise it. And it, it's, yeah, it's, it's that thing of, well, if you behave, you know, you'll get your bag of sweets or if you're really good at the end of the week, we'll take you to McDonald's. And it's, you're manipulating that behavior for the reward of a chemical. And that's the dangerous thing. And we're all trained into that because that's good for capitalism. It means that you do it yourself. So you go, oh, I've worked really hard today. I'm going to go eat that Snickers, Mars, insert chocolate bar uh, or whatever. You know what I mean? And it's we train ourselves into it. And then we have a drop off from the sugar or from the caffeine or from whatever. And we then go to other substances and we just end up maneuvering ourselves through these kind of chemical, um, I don't want to say comas, but we're just dampening ourselves with all of these things. Whereas cannabis and natural psychedelics, especially these these natural psychedelics like DMT and LSD, they're non-compoundary. They kind of kick you out. You get your experience and then you try and take more and it doesn't compound. The, the, the receptors don't ingest the compounds. You won't get higher. You get what you get if you're lucky to get it. <laughs> and by their nature, they're not going to lead to the same consequential issues. And we're starting to see people like using MDMA that are then again quitting smoking, people microdosing with psilocybin, having the same cessation rates of uh, nicotine patches and things like that, that they're reducing the, the combustion, but they're getting out of the nicotine. So they're actually breaking that cycle rather than changing the byproduct. I mean, look at the nicotine vape market. That's just transferring the addiction. It's not addressing it. Yeah, I like to say... Uh, ag uh addictive personalities <laughs> you know there's some people just have those addictive personalities and you know if they get caught up in pills or whatever it is and it's just you, you know what i'm saying it's the same thing with alcohol and i guess food and uh, sugar and i guess anything across the board if you got an addictive personality it doesn't have to be drugs it can be food it could be any, a, a lot of other things 
I think you could almost use addictive personality here as uh, as a pseudonym for sort of traumatized human or for, I don't say damaged in a pejorative way, but like a person that has been kind of harmed by life and is absent something. So they are seeking to fill it. You know, I can't remember which poet described it as, you know, the, the God, the God hole. And that most people, you know, they will plug it with religion, will plug it with relationships or sexual friendships or uh, sexual relationships or friendships. Uh, food, whatever, and it is that we're all on this bell curve spectrum, and some of us just have spikes in areas because they give us either the neurochemicals that we're missing, or they act as surrogates for something that we didn't get when we, we were younger. Or in balancing out, I mean, the the complex uh, psychology here is is massive, and we're only just starting to understand this. And I think again, it's a wonderful thing why. Uh, we have the legacy industry in cannabis and all drugs, the people that in the face of prohibition have sought to do our own research, that have sought to take the autonomy and authority back for our healthcare to go, I have an issue. I've learned about a thing online. I can access a thing. I'm going to go and try the thing. And I think that is part of the healing. That is part of the journey to self-actualization, as Maslow described it, as the the pinnacle of what it is to be human to be able to be in control of our own destiny and fate. And yeah, I hope more states in the same way that we're now seeing, I think it's 22 states that are now wreck, um, whatever it is the number it's up to. Um, no, I think it's less. No, yeah, it will be 22, I think it is. Um, that more states then follow suit with this, with, with the natural psychedelics, because I think we'll end up with more compassionate governance, more compassionate populations and hopefully a, a calming of, as, as you speak of this sort of uh, emerging culture war and this like binary fight between the left and the right. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people that have suffered a lot of trauma, you know, and seen a lot of horrible things in their life. And, you know, when something like that happens to you, you're never the same person, you know, and then you're always look, you know, and, you know, for whatever reason that it happened or whatever it, it happened, and when something horrible happens to you, you, you live with that with the rest of your life. And so there's certain things that you got to do to, you know, to get yourself through that. And, you know, that's part of the struggle, I think. And that's what, you know, leads people to addiction. And, um, you know, there's, you know, there's something inside that's just, you know, just not right. And, you know, some people, can never fix it and they and they bring it to their grave and so you you know it's a matter of realizing in your head you know and and trying to you know take the right corrective actions uh to to you know to do what you got to do to be right you know and everyone's got a different uh psychological makeup and all of that comes into play and how you were brought up and how you lived your life and everything. And so like, you know, depending on where you are, you know, like there's been, you know, the, the world is, is not kind, you know, and when you travel around and see other countries and you don't realize how lucky you really are when people are, you know, uh, struggling to eat a meal every day, you know, and, you know, uh, so you kind of, you know, you, you know, you count your blessings on that, you know, in that regard, but, you know, like to have to live a life of struggle, you know, and, you know, eventually I think it just, you know, uh, 
psychot, you know, psychologically, it just, you know, it, you know, it affects you, you know, uh, and yeah. the more you're exposed to it, the more I think you're going to be affected, but you could only, you could have one traumatic incident that could stay with you for the rest of your life. So it's, you know, it, it's really hard to say. Yeah. I look, I look forward to a world where this conversation is almost as clinical as, uh, you have a higher metabolism, therefore you need to take in more calories. It should be as almost as clinical as that. You, you've had some trauma in your life. Yeah, we can offer therapies and whatever else, but there's also a line where the trauma becomes your personality, where pe people, some people are so traumatized by events or have been experienced to such prolonged trauma that it becomes intrinsic to their, their being, to who they are. And whatever those people feel they need to pacify that, obviously not to the point of self-detriment, I don't have an issue with. I'm an advocate for the ubiquitous descheduling of all drugs and the addressing of all trauma, because I believe you could sell diamorphine heroin at every street corner in, in a world where people aren't traumatized and people would, yeah, maybe take some on a Friday night. That's it. That that is it. It's, it's again we're we're now starting to underpin this idea of like chemical hooks and that these drugs are devils. And it's like no heroin, the same thing that is being injected on street corners is being given to your gran when she breaks her hip in the hospital. One person ends up on the street and destitute, and the other doesn't. And it's because of perception. Do, do you know what I mean? It's because of their access. It's they're still in pain. Your gran's pain is from a hip, and the doctor can see that. They can't see the guy on the street's pain because he never had a stable home. He never felt that he was loved. He never felt connected. You know, and it's we get we get closer. Yeah, it, it, we, it's, it's hard. It's hard to define your balance in life. It really is, you know. Yeah. And sometimes, the older you get, you finally find your balance. You know, you go through a lot of experimentation, trials and tribulations just to go back to where you started from, at least I could only say that from my own personal experience, you know? Um, but, you know, trying to tell someone that, you know, and then experiencing yourself and, you know, sometimes you need, you know, you can, you can tell someone to your blue in the face, you know, but until they've experienced themselves and then they really are, Oh yeah, you were really right. You know? So, I mean, that's just the way that it goes is really trying to find your own self balance in life. Exactly that. There's a, a quote here I think I'd like to kind of round this up on. Uh, it's from Richard Alper, who sort of changed his name to Ram Das. Um, and he said, we're all just walking each other home. And I think that's a beautiful sort of sentiment in this. We're all just traumatized little tadpoles in the pond trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And the more compassion we can provide and the more collective acceptance through the, the creation of social spaces that we can all populate, I think is what's going to change it. And that's what I'm really excited for with this next wave of um, sort of the movement to legalize, deschedulize, decriminalize, whatever we're going to term it cannabis, because it's going to have to be the conversation around. We want pubs of cannabis. We want the social space. We want weed wherever we are. We want it out of these restrictive areas and into our daily lives. And I think that's going to be a, a very interesting battlefield uh, that's going to be fought very soon. Yeah, you know, the thing is, you know, the, the whole persona of, of it, you know, um, and, you know, when you get pe experienced people, you know, you those are the people you don't have to, 
you know, they already know the people you have to convince are the, or the, or the soccer moms and, and grandmothers and fathers, people who don't, people who don't participate, but feel threatened for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, the more people that consume, the more people that normalize it, the closer we get to it. And I think we are gradually having these sorts of conversations. I think it's going to take a few more years of the big boy investors speculating that they can make tens of billions and become gods in this uh, for it to die down and them lose interest. I think it's a shame that the kind of the crypto markets are crashing because I was kind of hoping that a lot of them guys would just transfer over and this would leave cannabis to people that actually give a shit about cannabis because it seems there are so few involved that are actually here for the longevity of the plant and not just for their short-term profiteering. Yeah, unfortunately, with all of that, that's kind of stifled some of the in- investors, you know, people that, want, you know, want to start putting up money, uh, invest in New York or whatever. You know, I've been in, you know, talks with, you know, several different people that, that have uh, shown interest in my company, wanting to do some type of collaboration or uh, business partnership and, you know, everyone, you know, talks and then it just kind of fall off, you know, the, the, you know, uh, the, the, everyone wants to do it, but, you know, for whatever reason, can't, can't get it done. Um, yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be hard, you know, um, these, these next couple of years, I think, uh, you know, once, you know, uh, you know, we get it, you know, federally legalized, I think is, you know, is, is really important to getting it off, deschedulizing it. Um, Cause it actually does have, you know, medical uh, benefits, but you know, none of that seems to be addressed. You know, I don't understand why uh, Joe Biden won't, you know, uh, just make it decriminalized because Richard Nixon was the one that criminalized it. You know, he didn't send it, he didn't send it to the, Congress, he just signed the paper and it was illegal. You know, now, now they're saying, oh, well, you know, Congress has got to pass it and everyone and, you know, yeah, it's all played the political football, you know, and, you know, and as you're getting, you know, into, you know, the different uh, parties, the Republicans, the Democrats, you know, everyone's got their own angle on it. And, you know, I, I just want what's, what, what's, right to be done you know and that's not what's being done yeah man exactly that it's it feels that the way it's going with the senate and congress and everything else is the they're refusing to bake the pie unless they all get a piece and by the time it gets up to the president and it would be signed nobody else outside of those rooms gets to make that money gets that control and it's that power grab game that we see with every resource Throughout, you know, how many more states got to go legal? What we got to get a majority of 26? Like, what, like, you know, um, medically, we're way, way over that at this so, point. So, so, you so, know, so. uh, you know, I don't see why it's still, uh, you know, on a descheduled list. You know, if it's medically over in medically accepted in over half of the states in the country, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, exactly. How can something both be a medicine and a dangerous drug? But yeah, it's it's an odd it's an oddity in terms of the way it's marketed. Um, I'm quite aware of the time here, uh, JJ. So I think we're gonna uh, wrap up with my final question that I ask every guest, or I try to, but sometimes I forget. Um, what does the future hold for you? 
Um, I'm hoping opportunity, <laughs> you know, I just want an opportunity to compete. You know, I don't have to be the biggest, you know, I just want to be able to have my own little neat niche piece of the market. I don't need to be the biggest, you know, I feel that my brand has substance. It can have the potential to be one of the biggest if you're running on that. But, you know, um, you know, with, uh, corporate market does not everything corporate doesn't work that way and, and unfortunately um cannabis going legal um you've brought all these other vultures into you know because the only thing they're looking at is um is making money you know these these capital capitalist ventures that you were describing um you know the corporation model is to make more money every year. So if I made a million dollars this year and I only made 900 the next year, that means I lost a hundred thousand. I didn't make nine. I didn't make 900. I lost a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, so, you know, they want to make 1 million into 2 million, 2 million to 3 million and just keep that corporate ladder going up, which I don't really see that happening in a commodity cannabis market where, you know, the, the prices fluctuate, uh, regionally and depending on the quality and the supply and demand and, and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, the only thing, you know, I just want a chance to compete, you know, and that's all I could ask for. If I, if I fail, then, you know, that that'd be on me, you know, but, um, yeah. Well, for fingers crossed, um, that, yeah, something sort of arises that social equity someday means social equity in one of these regions and you have an opportunity to go back to, to New York and New Jersey and participate in a market that your work helped build, frankly. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping, you know, I mean, that's home for me. I mean, I, I like living in Colorado, but, you know, after seven, eight years of being away from family and friends, and don't get me wrong, I go back multiple times a year and everything. And, you know, it makes all those occasions that much more special when you get together with friends. But, you know, as you get older, you know, you start to realize, you know, the people you have around you and, you know, friends and family and, you know, making money is great. Don't get me wrong. Everyone needs to make money, you know, to survive. So you really got to try to find that balance of being able to work all of that together, you know, and, um, you know, it's kind of hard. It kind of sucks when you got to leave your home to, to go somewhere else to work because, you know, of the laws or whatever. And, you know, and, you know, and you got to do what you got to do to further yourself up. You know, if I didn't move, I probably wouldn't be in the same position that I am now, obviously, you know, so at the time, you know, it was a step backwards, I could kind of say, but over time it's been two steps forward, you know? So, um, yeah, you just got to keep trying to, you know, further, further yourself and your opportunities, you know, and if you got to go where you got to go to make that happen, then that's what you got to do, unfortunately, you know, but, you know, as you get older, like I said, you know, 
you know, all, all that, all, a lot of other stuff starts to become more important to you, you know? Yeah, man. Yeah, I get that. I think that's, uh, that's a great way to end this. So I wanted to say again, thank you for dedicating uh, a chunk of time here and, and for, for coming on to this little podcast of mine. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's been a pleasure, man. No, I appreciate you having me on and I always enjoy, you know, talking to people, talking shop, you know, talking about the industry and, you know, trying to get the information out there and just trying to make things better for everyone overall. You know, I want, I want someone to have the same opportunity that I'm looking for down the road, you know? So, um, yeah. Pay you know. forward. Yeah. I get that. I get that, man. I get that. Well, uh, on that note, then I will include some links as well below. So if anyone's got any sort of questions and queries that they can sort of reach out to you, I'll also include obviously links to the top dog, uh, seeds website as well. And, um, yeah, thank you very much, JJ. It has been a pleasure. Uh, and I will, uh, I'll be in touch shortly to obviously let you know when this is released. Um, but I'm going to say goodbye because I'm desperate for the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, definitely uh, link me up and I'll post that. You know, I'll get that post out there and then some of my people can uh, link on to you, you know, get onto your channel uh, and, may, you know, maybe see some of your other guests as well and, you know, try to get you some followers. So I'm definitely, you know, would like to, uh, you know, help you as much as you help me. I appreciate that, brother. I appreciate that a lot. Right. It's yeah, it's been a pleasure. I'm literally gonna hit pause right, now and go and run for a piss. Yep. Have a great, great to meet you, JJ. Peace yes. out. Bye. Okay. Bye. Damn, that was necessary. That was needed. Um, apologies for the faces I've been pulling for the past 10, 15 minutes toward the end of that podcast there. I was uh yeah, I think I drank far too much coffee and water today and uh couldn't sit still for two and a half hours. I hope you've managed to sit still for two and a half hours. Um, not that I'm going to mark you. I'm not a judgmental teacher over here. Uh, but I hope you've made it all the way through this podcast. If you have, that means you've maybe enjoyed it. If you have, please do give us a like, a share, and a subscribe. Uh, do check us out on all social media platforms at The Simple Life. Um, yeah, check us out on patreon.com forward slash The Simple Life. Uh, where for less than a cup of coffee a week or a pint or a bacon sandwich or whatever your preference may be a week. You can help me keep the many lights on on this project. Um, yeah great guest you guys are awesome hope you enjoyed it we'll be back next week with mary biles fingers crossed i think it's mary biles i haven't got the note that's why i normally do the toss the papers in the air thing but i'm pretty sure it's mary biles if it's not it's gonna be a surprise guest to both of us so check it out peace and love folks see you next week <laughs>